0: Hello and welcome to the Build with Clay podcast. I am your host, Clay Davis. This podcast is designed to introduce you to people from across the world who have one thing in common. They want to grow in their life and inspire others. You'll get a front row seat to hear about how they define their mindset and their purpose. We'll unearth their habits, their failures, and learnings throughout their journey And this will allow you to take those habits, those failures, and those learnings and apply them to your personal growth journey, no matter where you're trying to build yourself and grow. This podcast is designed for you. So thank you for being here. Prepare to meet interesting people, hear fun stories, learn something new, and plan to leave inspired. In this episode, we build with David Foley. I wanted Foley, known by his last name in our friend circle. come on the pod for many reasons, one of which is he just retired at the age of 37. We chat about what went into that decision, what variables he considered, and what advice he has for others contemplating early retirement. In this wide-ranging discussion, we also discuss how to optimally design your life, travel tips, what it's like to be a lawyer, the power of reading, and much more. Foley graduated with an undergraduate degree in chemistry from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and then received his law degree from Duke University. Foley spent the first chapter of his career practicing law at Kirkland & Ellis, one of the country's most elite law firms. He then became a lead counsel in-house at multiple startup technology firms, concluding his career with CrowdStrike. I hope you enjoy this fun and wide-ranging conversation with a dear friend. Super excited to welcome David Foley to the pod. You're going to hear me refer to him not as David, but as Foley, because I have way too many friends named David. And so ever since I've known Foley, he has gone by that, his last name, Foley. So Foley, welcome to the pod, man.
1: Thanks. Excited to be here.
0: We are in your lovely home. I was driving in and through your neighborhood, and you have to weave a whole lot to get back to your house. On my right, as I was driving in, I see this flag hanging on one of your neighbor's doorsteps a couple blocks down, and it is a flag of the Miami Hurricanes and the UNC Tar Heels, like a house divided. How does one have a house divided amongst the Miami Hurricanes (laughs) and the UNC Tar Heels?
1: I'm confused about that myself, but it's actually not the worst one. I saw one, and it was—I think it was Tennessee and Miami, too. Oh, Tennessee and Florida. Oh, no, no, it was Tennessee and Miami. And I was like— do those schools have any rivalry? Like, do Well, they, they both have orange. <laughs> they both have orange. So I guess it's a fight over, over orange. So um, no, it's, uh, we, we just create rivalries here in this neighborhood, I think.
0: Well, you have the true house divided. We have the true house divided. So we're sitting here in your dining room. And while you and your wife both went to Chapel Hill, you got your law degree at Duke. You grew up a Duke fan, thanks to your mom. Yep. A true house divided here, Duke and Carolina. Yes. Big question. Who do your kids root for?
1: Uh, to spite us, they actually cheer for Virginia. They actually picked a third school. And not only that, in every game that they play, like Duke of UNC plays, they picked the other team. So Duke football played Clemson over the weekend. They were big Clemson fans. Uh, my youngest son, his favorite basketball team is Tennessee because that's who beat Duke in the NCAA tournament. So for all you parents out there who kids spite spite you at every turn you know you guys feel me but yeah wow yeah it's harsh
0: wait why virginia
1: i don't know actually i they i mean i guess they play duking and unc and they're pretty good so they kind of win sometimes I, it's not clear to me but if you ask each of them their favorite team is virginia they have never been to a Virginia game. They've watched it on TV a few times. I really don't know.
0: What a revelation. <laughs> there
1: it is. So, the Duke-UNC rivalry, it turns out, was totally irrelevant to my kids. They picked a third school.
0: I mean, they're young enough where maybe they'll realize their mistake because it is an amazing place to be in that rivalry. I oh, mean, yeah. You and I have grown up yeah. around it. And the fact that they're in Chapel Hill, like you gotta. I feel like you kind of have to pick one if your parents are there. Yeah. But now I'm kind of wondering about the home life here and like, is it just, just yelling? I mean, I know that you and Meg are both competitive in your own ways. I I mean, is it a healthy place to be here in the home? It is. It is a healthy place to be.
1: (laughs) So for us, for us, like, I I think we, we handle the rivalry pretty well. Like we don't, we don't talk, like we don't like smack talk each other or anything like that. We, we try to be, we try to be nice about it. And the thing is, is, you know, I I went to Chapel Hill. I had a great experience there. I love being a student there and so I don't I, I'm not a Duke fan who hates UNC I love I you know I it feels cliche to say it, but I cheer for UNC unless they're playing Duke I just prefer Duke and so you know and I've kind of turned Meg she was not like that she grew up a little bit of a Duke fan but um so she doesn't have that same hatred that yeah, there's not the had. resentment on right the other side. right it's not sort of a lifetime like 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 you maybe have, towards
0: Duke. Um, I still have decided to, to sit across from you. And right, have this exactly.
1: Like this is more of a you know we're we're still we're still working on that part of our relationship. But but no, I think uh, you know I, I we we have fun with it. You know it's it's more of a it's more of a fun rivalry for us. It's not you know it can it can turn a little sour with some people, but for us. But apparently, we might, I might be misreading the situation, because like I said, the kids picked Virginia, so there might be some deep-seated psychological issues there that I'm not seeing.
0: So when the Carolina game, Carolina Duke game happened in the Final Four, what did, did your kids just not watch? Like, what happened there?
1: Uh, I mean, they were younger, so, you know, my youngest was only one at the time, so he didn't care. Uh, the other one, he watched the replay of the game, I think. I'm not sure he watched it live, and was really excited about it, but actually... The game he really loved was UNC Kansas.
0: That because she, he was rooting for Kansas.
1: Yes, and he would he kept watching the replay. Like, we recorded it to watch it, and he kept watching the replay, which felt unnecessarily hurtful. So <laughs> that's where he's at. So you, for everyone else in the triangle, the Duke-UNC Final Four game was a big one. For, for my son, it was UNC Kansas.
0: Wow, revelations across the board.
1: There you go. So... Uh, he does wear, like, UNC and Duke gear, actually, because we buy him stuff, and he will wear it. Like, he, he went to, like, a Duke football game and, like, wore the Duke stuff, and we taken him to a UNC basketball game,
0: and he wore the UNC stuff. But He's just a confused child.
1: He's just all over the place. He just, he likes sports,
0: so. Hey, we're all about sports ball yeah. here. Yeah. So, you mentioned that you went to UNC. Yes. As a big Duke fan. Yes. So, I imagine that all the UNC fanhood, all the Carolina blue that you were wearing, In the privacy of your own dorm room, you put that on and you're thinking, I kind of have to do this in order for my own safety. Yeah.
1: Yeah. A little bit. A little bit. And like, you know, my roommate, Galen, is a big UNC fan, like diehard, like his dad went to UNC. And, you know, so it was, he knew I, he knew I was a Duke fan because I still had Duke we still had Duke basketball season tickets at the time. So I would go to the games even from UNC, but like I would wear like a UNC hoodie or an an unmarked hoodie and then have a Duke shirt under it to go to the basketball games. So that was, that was my safety thing. But you know, I I loved UNC and I, I loved going to the games at UNC too. It was great. it It was fun. Like I did riser, you know, I went and, you know, went to the games at the risers and cheered for UNC and everything like that. But you know, then I also went and cheered for Duke. So I'm, I, no wonder my kids are confused <laughs>
0: what did you when you went to carolina duke games at carolina i'm sure you had the experience to do mm-hmm. that at least once or twice yep what I, did you wear
1: uh i actually wore nondescript clothing for both for i, I i've actually been to quite a few because my college roommate had season tickets so i had i went as a student but then i also went as um as his guest and
0: i would wear just gray So everyone knew that you were rooting for Duke, but they couldn't really say anything. Right.
1: It wasn't like an insulting thing I wore or like, yeah, it was more just like, does this guy like sports? Why is he here at this huge basketball game?
0: Well, it should speak to our (laughs) friendship and the friendship of many others in our lives that we, because we met at Carolina Mm -hmm. and have traveled together. You've traveled with many of our friends that we've, we've, we've gone past this. We've, we've looked past this in many aspects of our life on both sides. Right. And have a mutual respect for one another. So, um, as a as a way to get to know you a little bit more, um, I'm curious on a couple of just random get to know you questions here. Okay, let's do it. Would you rather do yoga or meditate?
1: Uh, yoga, yoga. My my mind really drifts when I meditate, and I either fall asleep or I just end up thinking about totally random things like space aliens or something. And I'm like, I feel like I'm not meditating. Right. So, uh, yoga, at least the body's moving and stuff.
0: Would you rather live without TV or music? Ooh.
1: I would say without music, uh, mostly cause of sports. Like I, I don't watch, we don't watch a ton of like scripted television,
0: but I watch a lot of sports and I don't think I'd be able to function without watching sports. Would you rather live in the same place for the rest of your life? or move somewhere new every year? Same place, same place.
1: I actually, this is, when I grew up, my family moved a lot when I was growing up, and I'm actually very big, like I want to stay in this house forever. Like, I'm aii that's like a choice right there. It's like, even moving every four years, I'd rather stay in the same place.
0: You're in a good spot here. Yeah, thank you. You're in a very good spot here. All right, so you got a couple stories, and um, well, you have one story and I have one that I'm teeing up for you that you don't realize I'm teeing up for you. Okay. Tell me about the snake charmer in Morocco. The snake
1: charmer in Morocco. So I was traveling with our friend Curtis, um, and we went to Spain and then Morocco and we went, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I might get the details of some of the snake charmer wrong, but we'll see. So we were in, Marrakech, uh, Marrakesh and we were, it was. Curtis is not always the most prepared person. And at the time I wasn't either. And we sort of went into this travel and just like, we were not very well prepared with anything. And we didn't know any of like the local customs or anything like that. We went during Ramadan and no one's drinking water. So like, we're like chugging water and pouring it all over ourselves and everyone's judging us like they hate us. But in the, in the market of Marrakesh, they have these snake charmers and we were like, Oh, that's so cool. Like snake charmer, you know, or whatever, 22, 23. And it, it, it turns out this is like a well-known, like, I don't know if scam is the right word, but it's, it's you know, they're, they're, they want to get paid.
0: It's like and, walking down the Las Vegas Strip. Yeah,
1: exactly. It's the people like dressed as gladiators outside of the Coliseum in Rome or everyone in Vegas or, or everyone in New York, like kind of dressed up like that. So Curtis goes up and takes a picture with him and the guy's just like starts demanding money and he doesn't speak a lot of english and we don't really know what to do and we were totally unprepared for this which in retrospect And you like, offer
0: him water and he's like, offer like yeah. water and he's
1: like I can't do that it's <laughs> this is a religious and i forget how it works out but we end up just like it, it, it's, Curtis gives him, like, some small amount of money. It's, like, a, the equivalent of, like, a dollar. And it's like, hey, that's it. And this guy's just, like, not having it. And it's, like, threatening to... I believe he's threatening to throw a snake at us, but we're not entirely sure. And I think Curtis grabs, like, a hundred dollars and it's like, throws it at him and then we run. But what's interesting about that around, at the Morocco story is it's funny you brought up the snake charmer thing. I, I remember it, but that actually wasn't the most memorable thing. The weirder part was that we were on this, like, bus tour. This is just an overall Morocco story. We are on this bus tour through Morocco, and we, like, spent the night in the Sahara Desert and stuff, and we were part of a large group. And then for some reason, we had to—our departure point was different than the rest of the tour group. And so they give us this, like—so we're, we're in a bus with everyone else, and it's, you know, a lot of Westerners, and we're feeling safe and everything like that. But then for some reason on like the last day they just like put us in this random car and it's like it's like attack like an unmarked taxi almost and they're just like bye and they put us in this car and send us on a different thing and like we just get in like with no questions asked like no one's the driver doesn't speak English I have no idea if he knows where we're going. And he just like sent they just like send us north in Morocco in this unmarked car. These two American guys during Ramadan when no again, no one's drinking water. We're just like chugging it at, at every stop. And somehow they get us there to where we're going, despite no one speaking English that we talk to. And in, this is one of those stories that in retrospect it's like, what were we doing? Why didn't we like confirm anything or like ask why they put us on a different car than everyone else? But we made it back. And uh, got got to Morocco and then and then and then across to Spain. But that whole trip was uh, was very poorly planned, but it actually was a ton of fun because it was very spontaneous and everything like that. Yeah, so fly got, by the seat of your pants yeah, the whole time. So yeah, like you know, spent the night in the Sahara Desert. We rode camels. It was great.
0: Wow. Yeah. Well, you've I know, you've traveled a ton, and um, I've always thought of you as kind of a travel guru in terms of. Maybe not that trip. In right.
1: <laughs> I, would, I would hardly be the expert you've, on
0: have You've grown from the mistakes maybe that have been made exactly. and realized, hey, maybe I should be a little bit more prepared or think about some things. But it's still like you guys had some awesome experiences. Kind of a random aside because I know you're a big traveler. Like Any tips or tidbits for those? I mean, everyone loves to travel yeah. or most people love to travel. As a quote-unquote guru that I'm <laughs> claiming you as, yeah, anything that comes to mind?
1: yeah i mean i think what the the thing i like the most about travel is is kind of the spontaneity so it's funny i just kind of mocked that on the last trip but i i think it's important to build in a lot of time i i think what i see with people who don't travel as much or who or who i don't think get as much out travel at least the way i like to travel is kind of scheduling everything like if you're going somewhere you know you're going to Paris or something and then you're setting up like this museum for four hours and this museum for four hours and then this and this and this and everything scheduled I think you kind of miss out on why you're going you know I the a lot of the times I've liked traveling the most is sort of random things like you kind of stumble into a garden or something and you just kind of read a book there or you know you go you meet random people I used to travel a lot more and like before I had kids and was married and stuff I traveled in hostels and you know you're sharing a room and it's like a dorm room and you're going out with random people and I think you miss a lot of sort of the local experience and you know not in the super pretentious way just in like the you know you miss out on things that you didn't realize were there when when you sort of schedule everything and you know you don't have time to just kind of walk around and have fun
0: yeah you brought up Paris and it made me think if you asked either me or Whitney, what our favorite part of Paris was. It was probably the afternoon that we sat and people watched and read, read a book and had some like chocolate and random little pastry things that we just like basically had a picnic on the quad or whatever you want to call it where the Eiffel tower is. So we had the Eiffel tower in the background. We had all these people, tourists and locals walking around and we were reading and talking and just, you know, eating and just had no care in the world. And that was probably our favorite part of Paris. Right.
1: And you probably saw the Mona Lisa and the Eiffel Tower and everything. And it's like, those are the things that like everyone thinks about. But it's like, that's the type of travel where, you know, I I feel like most people's memories kind of go back to, you know, standing in a line of in a crowd of tourists and like taking a picture or, like seeing, you know, the three foot Mona Lisa, which is incredibly small. Three foot? I, mean, I don't, I mean, don't know. Like,
0: no, I don't know if it's yeah. actually even yeah. like like three foot yeah. anywhere. Right. <laughs> I, I think it's true. like a piece of yeah, eight a, and a half by eleven. Right.
1: It's like it's kinda of disappointing, honestly. And you know, you have crowds around it, but you know, sort of just doing your own thing and kinda of having a having a relaxing time is is what I like to do. Um when and my story is gonna be is gonna be another travel experience, and I'll tell you my favorite day there. And it's definitely a day that is would would hit no travel guide as a recommended thing to do.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm assuming you're talking about New Zealand. Yes, yeah. So this is so
1: my big travel, and this is sort of the this was the the, the, the tee up to this was you know sort of what what's a defining moment of your life or a defining thing in your life. And for me, it was it was backpacking through New Zealand. So it's this summer after my junior year of high school and I decided to backpack around New Zealand alone for two months. And no, this was again, very little preparation went into this. What I had was I had plane tickets there and back. I had sort of a round trip ticket. So I left in like the middle of June, came back in the middle of August and then a bus pass. So It was like an unlimited bus pass. You could go anywhere you wanted. And then I had some money and I knew I was gonna stay in like hostels and stuff and no plan and that was it. So this was two thousand three, so you know there was the internet. I'm not that old, but it was not like the it, iPhone was 07. It was so. not an it was not an iPhone. Like you didn't have so so like I had like a paper map that was like how I decided where to go with like this paper map. And I was fairly naive in the world, and like at the time, I was pretty quiet and shy, and like not all that comfortable with myself. Like I had sort of I gained weight at the end of middle school and the beginning of high school, and just kind of you know, wasn't all that comfortable with myself. And I, I don't, I can't really remember the rationale for why I decided to go to New Zealand for two months. It was probably had something to do with Lord of the Rings being filmed there. It was probably not a particularly well thought out trip, but it was kind of a life changing trip for me. You know, I went there and I I was never all that self-reliant, like self sort of, you know, I, I could function in the world, but it the trip just kind of forced me to be, to kind of, uh, you know, own and be my own, sort of like own my own life and decide what I wanted to do. And I could do anything, you know, like while, and while I was there, I, you know, I went skydiving, I hiked a glacier, um, and going back to sort of my tips on travel, my, my favorite day, and this is kind of embarrassing considering I like went skydiving and did all this cool stuff, um, was Harry Potter book five came out while I was there and, I was staying in this great hostel in Wellington, which is the capital, and it's a beautiful city, and I was staying in this hostel and they had this like sunlit room with like a couch on it. And I got Harry Potter that morning. It was the day it came out, and I spent the entire day on this like comfy couch and there was people coming in and out and it was just like it was just an amazing day. And it was, but it was like me reading Harry Potter in like a youth hostel in Wellington, New Zealand. Like it was totally like not at all anything that like you'd recreate or anything like that. But it was just sort of like, it kind of felt right at the time. And it was just one of those things that, you know, the whole trip kind of, you know, made me realize sort of how in control of your own life you can be. You can kind of just Wanted to go to a different city, I went to a different city. If, if I wanted to eat this, I ate that. If I, you know, wanted to hike a glacier, I hiked a glacier. I jumped out of an airplane. So, and I think that sort of gave me sort of the, the control of my life. I felt like I was probably missing. And also I, I grew like four inches that summer and then lost a whole bunch of weight because I was like hiking around, like backpacking around. And like when I came back, like my friends did like, did not recognize me. Like it was just Who like, is this man? Who is it? Why are you at my school? Why are you here? And so. It was it was kind of a life-changing trip for me. I was really quiet and shy, which is not how I think people describe me now. Now people are like, why are you so loud? Like, uh, I can see you messing with the volume thing, and I assume it's me just being too loud in this. And so... Um, You know, it it just kind of changed my whole life trajectory a little bit. And it kind of got me into travel. Like The only travel I had done before that was very touristy travel. You know, you go to New York and you go to a Broadway show. And I love that. I I like those kind of travels, too. But it was sort of the first time where I was kind of just did what I wanted and kind of backpacked around. I ended up, after college, backpacking around Europe for... A few months I went to Morocco and Spain with Curtis like I've done I hiked the Inca Trail with my sister so I've done a lot of these trips after that but that was sort of the first one where I kind of went out and kind of did it
0: I don't think I knew that story that's, yeah that's neat
1: it was also my college
0: admissions essay
1: was about that and I got into colleges so hey it must work
0: so yeah <laughs> grew four inches read Harry Potter five like right nail, got into in New Zealand <laughs> Wow. Oh, that's super interesting. And did you finish the book that day? I did. I did. Whitney, my wife, would be very proud because yeah. that's what she would do. She would like wait in the line for Harry Potter whenever the yeah. whatever one was releasing as yep. she was in whatever middle school or high, early high school and then would stay up all night and read through the night and would not go to sleep until she finished it.
1: Yeah. So, uh, also in for when book seven came out, I was in London.
0: I was backpacking
1: around Europe and I was in London. I went to like the you know, biggest bookstore in London. They had this big Harry Potter party at midnight and did the release. And I bought the book then and then spent the entire day reading it. So that's actually a a common theme in my travels. So is staying up and reading Harry Potter
0: in random countries. (laughs) Well, the good news is you didn't give up TV in our hypothetical earlier. And there's that, I think there's a show coming out in a couple of years, maybe that is revolved around Harry Potter. Ooh, exciting. I think it's, It might be HBO. I can't recall the mm. exact details, but I remember Hayes, my son, who is now super into Harry Potter and has yeah. read the first four He's he's like, What is it coming out? I'm like, this is a couple years from oh, now. Yeah. <laughs> You're gonna be twice as old <laughs> as you are now. Right. But we have to like hold him off from reading the other ones because they, they get old. They little, get a little dark there. A little yeah. dark.
1: I was actually wondering about we haven't we haven't read
0: Harry Potter to our oldest
1: yet, but he's very into books and uh, we started a couple of like little chapter books, but it's like Magic Tree has some stuff, and we were wondering sort of what the what the right age for Harry Potter is. Well I'll
0: give you my Initial experience. Yeah. So we read the first one and we said, Hey, once we finish the first one, we'll watch the movie. Yeah. So then we get halfway through the first one. It's like for a a four year old, I think at the time, it takes a while to get to halfway through. So at halfway through, we said, okay, for context, we'll just watch half the movie. Right. And so you can kind of visualize what this looks like and whatever. So we do that. There's not a lot of darkness that's happening Mm -hmm. in that, in that first, first half. Well, then the second half of the first book at the end is when Professor Quirrell unwraps his Whoa, turban. Spoilers. And <laughs> and Voldemort <laughs> is on the back of his head. <laughs> and uh, sorry for those that have spoiled that too.
1: We'll put it. We'll put. We'll put something on this episode that there's some Harry Potter spoilers. Right. Right. In here. Big spoiler. Alert.
0: <laughs> and that you must be in New Zealand or a foreign country to read. Obviously. Said. Obviously. So Hayes, we read it. we read the second half of the book. We watch the movie. He sees actually what Voldemort looks like on the back of someone's head. Right. And he's four years old. Right. And Terrifying. Whitney and I, Whitney and I are kind of like, and he like does well in the moment. Like right. when it happens, he he's snuggled up with me. It's yeah. fine. Well, so then we go up later that night and we go, I go read him his book. Like we go brush his teeth and we're walking back out in the hallway and he turns to me and he goes, um, daddy. I said, yeah. He said, when I turn around, I think I'm going to see Voldemort. <laughs> <laughs> Not good. and Whitney happened to be in the hallway too. And I just look at her and we both are just like shaking our head. Like what a parent fail oh. that we just exposed our kid to that. Luckily he has recovered. He's fine. At least externally. I'm sure his therapist when he's 35 is going to be, you know, reaching back into finding that memory and realizing that, all of his woes in life were because he saw voldemort when he was four when he was four
1: there you go well if it makes you feel better i had a parent fail that i thought i was helping and it turned out that it was something similar It was like in the moment it was nothing and then later it felt like it was something uh the kids were staying with meg's mom so their grandmother and the way that the locks work on the doors is that you have to have a key even from the inside so it's not like a bolt lock and that's not how our house works so I didn't know if our kids like in an emergency or something could get out and this was like this year so you know my son's five so he can operate doors and like I wanted him to be able to get out so I was showing him how it worked I was like here's the key and you know here's how you do it like you can't just turn the 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 bolt you have to have a key and he's like why why would I need that. And I was like, you know, in an emergency, like a fire or something. And I just say it, like, casually, just like, hey, like, you know. These things happen all the time, like right. fires. And and he's like, oh, okay. Nothing goes on. Like, he's going to bed that night. And he's like, mommy, daddy, is there going to be a fire? And where do I go once I get outside? And I was like, oh, no. I have to try to teach, like how to get out of the building not like here's fire safety tips then i had to walk it back and be like no it's all gonna be fine like that's not but it goes to show that their parenting fails beyond just you know showing voldemort to your kid he's four mine you know lucas will have lucas will go to therapy and talk about fires and why i introduced (laughs) a five-year-old to having to escape a burning building
0: build with david foley fires (laughs) in voldemort (laughs) there you go so you'll, uh, you'll appreciate this. So I, <clears throat> this morning, so I I have, when we get physical mail, which yes, we still receive physical yeah. mail all the time. Most of it is spam. Yeah. Um, but some of it's relevant in some degree. And so I purposely don't read it every day. I, I kind of treat it like my email. Like I don't, I, I, well, I do read my email every day, <laughs> but I treat it in the sense that like, if I get it, it's not like I'm immediately opening it and diverting my attention to it right away. Right. So usually I just like kids or me or Whitney, like we'll just put the the envelopes on my desk that are addressed to me, have them face down so I can't even see who they're from or like be tempted by it. And then once every couple of days, I'll be like, okay, I'm gonna like go through these. And most of them are just immediate recycle. So one of them is from a company called Celsius. Celsius uh, went bankrupt and I unfortunately had some cryptocurrency in said place. So I'm, you know, I guess one of the, you know, hopeful recipients if they end up getting any cash from, from the bankruptcy filings. And I'm looking at it, and uh, who do you think the lawyer is? Uh,
1: my mother? I don't know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it is not your Kirkland mother. Kirkland and Ellis. Kirkland and Ellis. <laughs> and the only reason I know Kirkland and Ellis is because you work there. Yes. And so <clears throat> I always loved when I went to visit you in Chicago, when you came back from your summer internship in college – at Kirkland, Kirkland and Ellis, I was always curious about, like, what is it like as a life, life as a lawyer, yep. especially early on? And I remember you were galing me about the difference between the summer internship oh, yeah. versus reality of actually working at a law firm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So summer, summer is like summer internship. Then I went,
0: I was in law school
1: kind of during The Great Recession, sort of the 2008 to 2010. And it changed a lot, apparently, since then. Um, But when I was there, I was still the tail end of sort of the glory years of Summer Associates. And it was wonderful. It was like, you know. It was like camp. It was like camp. Like, we had all these events. Like, we went to, like, I was in, it was in Chicago. So I went to Cubs and White Sox games. I went to musicals. Like, everything was free. They had all these bar events. There was, like, an, you know, like, open bar. You're, like, 21 years old. Yeah, 21, 22. Surrounded by others. Like, surrounded by, it was, it was, it was. And we were all wildly overpaid because they were paying us like we were first-year associates, which is a lot at a big law firm. But we weren't doing any work. Like I was doing like an hour of work a day. And in retrospect, it was totally useless work. Like no one could ever use anything I did there. Like when I got, became a lawyer, I was like, oh, that was all joke work. Like it was like, it was like, go find all the logos that look orange. And I was like, great, I'm helping. <laughs> it's like the work you give your five-year-old. Like Thank
0: you for your $1,000 <laughs> right. paycheck every, every week.
1: Yeah. So it was, yeah. And it was, it, it was just incredible. Like I, you know, I went home at five and the other thing is that they encourage lawyers to take you out to lunch and they take you out to these like incredible, like we went to the nicest steakhouses in town and like, um, I learned the term meat sweats, which I didn't know before, which is you eat so much meat and we did this, we went to these Brazilian steakhouses, and you eat so much meat that you end up like sweating from it, like you're working out. And so sometimes I would, we would go there. I went there three or four times during the summer and then I would have to like go and like lay down in my office after like, and it's, like two in the afternoon on a Wednesday and I would like lay down in my office and well, like, you had
0: to prepare yourself to go to the
1: Cubs game. Later right, that night. Exactly. And uh, yeah, it was just in, this incredible time. And actually, while I was a summer associate there, I went to uh, a White Sox game and I went to Mark Burley's perfect game. So I went to like one of like 20 perfect games in MLB history. And actually, I was supposed to go to a Kirkland training event that day. And I got invited to the White Sox game and I was like, no, nah, I'll just skip the training event. <laughs> I'll go to the White I Sox I know game. how to find all the orange logos already. <laughs> right? I, I can Google with the best of them. Um, so it was it was this incredible time. And then I got an offer at the end of summer. And it, before my year, everyone got an offer. Is just if you got the summer internship, you kind of got an offer. Is just sort of unless you committed crimes or something you did. Our year because it was two thousand eight or two thousand nine. It was sort of it was the first year where they started like rescinding offers and not everyone got them. So apparently, I did enough that I wasn't in that group. But. Um, but I got the offer and then I sort of had a job and then went back and finished my last year of law school and then, and then went to work. And I show up the first day and I swear I thought it was going to be like the summer associate job. I thought, I, even though I would heard like, oh, it's nothing like it. It's going to be like real work. I was sort of like, yeah, they just say that to kind of keep the, keep the idiots out who don't know. And like the first day. I worked till like 11 pm like it was like i worked like i worked like 15 hours the first day and you get there and like it turns out the orange logo thing was a joke assignment Then you're doing the real assignments and like the first day they handed me this like 180 page contract with no context and they were like review this and i was like review it for what and i'm like doing like i'm like spell checking it because i don't know what i'm doing i'm like is this right and I like I marked it up, and there was an old school partner who still like didn't use computers at the time. It was like two thousand eight. did everything by hand, and he got it and like marked up this hundred and eighty pages by hand and handed it back to me. He's like, "This was not good," and it was like he had bloodied the whole thing. And I didn't, I didn't even know like what I was supposed to. Do. Like no one had taught me, and that was how they taught you was just like threw you in the deep end. And then they were like, "Here's how like a real lawyer does it," and you're a small child. It turns out who doesn't know what they're doing. And so, you know, I worked there for four years and it was, I mean, it was really good training and kind of prepared me for a lot, but man, it was, it was not like the summer associate job. <laughs> I will tell that if there's, if there's any listeners out there in, in law school that, that, that real job, it's very different, but enjoy that summer.
0: I have so many questions. I don't want to like derail this conversation, but around just that work environment, like it just seems so unhealthy the, the summer associate sounds very oh, yeah. healthy, <laughs> almost I'm not too sure. healthy. I'm
1: not sure. There was a lot of drinking, but.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but like, I'm just thinking mentally. I mean, there's this whole mentality, especially in the United States around work as hard as you can work 80 hours, 90 hours, like that's success. Yeah. You're doing that. And sure, in many of those professions, like a lawyer, you're going to have a great paycheck. And you're gonna have meals. I remember. I think it was like if you stayed till after six PM, that they would buy you dinner.
1: Uh, yeah, and it was free lunch almost every day, and then they have free breakfast at the place. So at the firm, so it's like you, you, you They wanted you to live there, and I did that first year at least.
0: Yeah, because I, I mean, how realistically, how many hours do you think you worked?
1: So I, so you have to bill your hours too. So I have a rough idea because you had to like bill hours. You had to bill the clients because you're getting like you bill the clients hourly. And you do it in ten, in six minute increments. So it's a tenth of an hour. You send this
0: email, add that.
1: Oh, absolutely, yeah. And you had to track it and like keep track of it and everything like that. And I was the my first year, um, I was dating my now wife, and but she was still in Chapel Hill, and I was in Chicago. So I was you know in a relationship, but I was like you know a thousand miles away, and so I was just like worked all the time. And so I was the highest biller in my group my first year, and I billed, like, 3,000 hours. But there's a lot of non-billable work, too. So you can only—that's only, like, the billable stuff. So that'd be 60 hours a week for 50 weeks. But there's non-billable work in there, too. So I I worked more than that because, you know, you do— I, you do like pro bono stuff, but you do like trainings and things like that that don't count toward
0: those hours. And you, I know you well enough. I yeah. know you did a lot of pro bono stuff.
1: I did a lot of pro bono. I got I got a little, I got a little ward every year for my, my pro bono. So, you know, no big deal. They're out there, they're in my office still. But um, no, I mean, I, I probably worked like, I probably worked like 80, 80 hours a week on average. And those are first, the, yeah,
0: yeah and those are real 80 hours. Like those there's, are re, yeah. there, there's people that work, quote unquote, 80 no. hours a week. No. And half of that time is they're sitting at their cubicle or desk and like watching TikTok or right. something. Like you yeah. legitimately are getting tracked oh, yeah, and yeah. billing on the actual work you're doing. Yeah. And
1: like, uh, yeah, we'd have clients like, like ask about the bills too. So you had to like kind of prove it too. Like, I mean, you'd be like, oh, you know, did you really work at 11 p.m. last night? I'm like, look at my emails. Like I sent out 15 emails at 11 p.m. And so, you know, it was a lot. And that first year was the far and away the, the year I worked the most. Um, Cause you know, my, my girlfriend, I guess at the time was, you know, long distance and I was new and didn't know what I was doing. So I just worked all the time. And I I mean, it was kind of terrible at the time, but in retrospect, it wasn't that bad. It was actually kind of nice in the sense that I got this reputation as like this, you know, super go-getter. Like I had this great reputation at work to the point where for the next few years, you know, uh, Meg moved up to Chicago and I, I wasn't working as much, but I still had the reputation. So when I said like, no, I'm busy, which is not something associates are really supposed to say at big firms. They, they believe me because they assume that I was just like still working, you know, 80, 90 hours a week. And when I said I was busy, it was because I had 80 or 90 hours of work and couldn't go to a, hun- you know, like it wasn't that that I was just like wanted to go see, you know, friends or you know, family or anything like that. And so I kind of coasted on that reputation for a few years to the point where even my last year, um, we wanted to move back to North Carolina, and they let me work remotely for a year, which was kind of a new thing for them. Like big firms don't really do that. And but I sort of had this reputation as like this crazy person who worked all the time. And I kind of, you know, lived up, you know, kind of lived on that for a while. So, it worked out and it was, you know, it's good training and everything like that. Like, you know, I wouldn't do it again. I and I wouldn't recommend it. It wasn't a healthy lifestyle long term, but it was, you know, it's good to get out there and do it, you know, at the time it worked out for me.
0: And so then you brought your skills to go in-house. Yes, as a lawyer. Yes. How would you differentiate that experience?
1: So it's it's very different and it's almost not like practicing law in a weird way um, in that when you're at a law firm, you kind of have to be like the expert on the law. You, you know that's why they hire you. You know companies hire you and they pay you an, an insane amount, and you bill the clients an insane amount. I mean, I, even as like a junior associate, my billable rate was like six hundred and fifty dollars an hour, and it's gone up since then. Um, like for that level,
0: so like so every six minutes, every six minutes, sixty five dollars. Yes. So we've we've been recording yeah. this for yeah. about thirty six. Yeah, minutes, you're gonna get so a bill at the end
1: of this, and it's gonna I'm, be a
0: lot. <laughs> I'm at about I'm, I'm at about four hundred dollars right now. So,
1: <laughs> no, and so it's interesting when you go in house because you, you know when when clients pay that amount, they kind of expect perfection, justifiably so, and so you kind of have to be the expert on everything, not you, but your firm, and so it's not there's not a lot of like gut feelings and like how you know hey I think this will work or hey we're willing to take this risk it's sort of hey I'm going to protect my client at all costs and I'm going to learn everything and do everything and then you go in-house and you're working you know I supported sales and you're in sales so you, you know you have to get deals done like and I worked for startups I worked for like you know you know, private companies, pre-IPO companies, and they're just trying to get deals done. And a lot of it is like a gut feeling on like, hey, I can accept this. Yeah, this isn't that big a risk. No, I got it. Like, we got this. Yeah, that's a stupid clause, but it, you know, it works out. Because you have to get deals done, and so you kind of have to like take that ownership of the business. So it it was almost like I went into like, not a sales role, but like, you know, a, just a, not a legal role where it's like a lot of my stuff was not like no one's asking me what laws there are applied. you know it's like hey can we accept these words in a paper, in a contract and I'm like sure doesn't look like it means anything done and so, and so I went to I specifically picked sort of a company where I thought I'd have a good lifestyle and I was right it was great you know it was, I worked at the first in-house company I went to for three years they end up getting bought by sort of a, a mega IT company and kind of killed the culture. But it was this great culture for this small company. It was great. You know, I kind of learned how to be a business person and have like judgment and stuff because at the law firm, that's not like encouraged. You're learning the law. You're learning sort of how to write a contract, but you're not learning like, hey, this is a risk I'm willing to take on behalf of this entire company and then sign the contract kind of thing. So, you know, it's it's a very different world, but it was, it was, it was a really good move for me.
0: Yeah, you got me thinking about because you're right, it's been in sales and there's been many conversations with lawyers. And it's uh, unfortunately, and you probably know this the lawyers are like the butt of the joke or the, or, oh, yeah. or the, hey, hey, why is this contract t- or why is this deal taking so long? Oh, the freaking lawyer Foley just won't. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's stuck on these three clauses and whatever. And so it's, it's interesting because I, I find myself in the situations as the salesperson, so I'm working with the foley of my right. of my company or or a version of foley, not as great, obviously, obviously, and much lower rate. <laughs> right. I, I would hope so. <laughs> and it's almost like the two of us are trying to figure out the contract ourselves. It's like it's like I'm ki- I'm kind of the expert as well. Like right. it's not like I'm just like 100 relying on someone else. We're just like kind of reasoning right around it. And I leave those calls sometimes thinking like, this is like multiple millions, potentially like hundreds of millions Mm -hmm. of, of indemnification or other things going on. And I'm like, why do I have a say in this? Right. Yeah.
1: No, it's crazy. I mean, like, especially on, on the partner side, like sales is a little bit more like when you're selling a product, it's a little bit more straightforward because everyone kind of knows what product it is. It's sort of a simple transaction, but especially on like the partnership side and I've, I sort of did a lot of our larger partnership deals and I know you've done sort of partnerships too they're they're almost all totally made up in the sense of like there's no like form for it because you're doing different things with every partner you're kind of deciding what everyone's doing on the fly. And so on that, like we really do as a lawyer rely on sort of the business person to explain what's even going on. Cause usually the contract is some random form contract that one of the sides started from, they don't usually have something. And so we're like, why is this in here? Is this relevant? Or what are we even doing here? And we're, we'll just talk it through and be like, yeah, that doesn't really feel like a big risk. And, that was a skill that I improved the most in house, was sort of that judgment on what matters and what doesn't, and sort of how you translate what's happening in the real world to paper. And it's a hard, it's a hard thing to do because that's very different than they don't teach that in law school. They didn't even re- really teach that at a law firm. Like I learned lots of stuff, but not, not that part. It was more technical skills, and then you kind of have to learn those business skills. So, even beyond the, the legal side, and there are sort of like, hey, someone someone gets hurt you know we blow up your software you know we we erase all your all your data or whatever it is even beyond that it's it's the business side and this is where this is where I think I I grew the most as a lawyer once I went in-house was even figuring out the questions that the business side didn't think about on the on like what people need to do from the business because I think sales has a tendency to always see the best in everything. Like, oh, when this partnership works, this is what's going to happen. And even beyond sort of like people getting hurt or like it all falling apart, there's the, hey, what if it's a little harder than you think? What if instead of taking three months, it takes nine months? How does that change everything? And people don't usually think about that. And that's sort of like where... I think a good lawyer can come in and do that and say, hey, you know, here's what happens. And it's not, it's not about sort of like, you know, beating the other side over with a stick. It's about thinking it through and being like, hey, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's almost like a prenup or something, which, you know, I, I don't have a prenup, so I've never negotiated one, but like, sort of that we're rational right now at the beginning of the relationship. Let's not wait until it's all on fire and it's doing it and then decide how things, you know, how things would would get split up, or how we'd handle it, and so I think you know, I, I think you can do that at the front end when everyone's excited about the deal. But if you can have those conversations, it can kind of save
0: a lot of partnerships. You were at the first in-house company, and then you yep. went to CrowdStrike, and I think it was probably what about a six-year period that you were at those two companies. Six, six seven, uh, years? I was
1: at I was at the first one for three years, and then I was at CrowdStrike for six.
0: Okay. So it was a little like COVID messes my timeline up. So almost a decade of in-house lawyer. Almost a decade. And what are you doing now?
1: Now I am retired, I guess. At what age? At 37. I had to think about that because my birthday is in a couple of weeks.
0: 37, 37 and retired. So what was the reaction of your coworkers when they found out that 37 year old Foley was retiring? You know,
1: it's interesting. I, so I didn't, broadcast it internally all that much um a couple of like the people i was close to knew that i wasn't you know planning on working at least a full-time job in the future but i i kind of framed it as like a just a hey i'm stepping back from things for a while but even that even sort of like framing it more like a sabbatical or a you know a work break or whatever people were kind of like blown away people were like what are you doing like this huge risk why would you do this you know and and this is at a company that you know we went public three years ago, four years ago. So, like, it, these are people who have been there as long as I had. Like, everyone made pretty good money. I mean, it was a very successful IPO. And and, it, and even with that, people were, like, blown away that even, like, a six-month break was just, like, too much for people's minds to handle. Like, I could, I don't even think I could have told them that, like, I was not going, like, not planning on taking another full-time job ever again. And I don't think they could have handled that. But it was crazy, just, like, this this shock of it. It's just people kind of follow a path. A lot of people follow a path. And it's very, it's weird when people get off that path. And, you know, I've had a very successful career. I mean, I'm fairly senior and, you know, worked at great companies and stuff like that. And even at the end, my job was good. I have I left a good job. I was not, like, miserable and crying in the corner every night and working Kirkland hours, you know, and all these things. And so, like, I think it just shocked everyone that I would just, like, had other priorities and didn't want to spend my day Working right now.
0: Wait, you you love your family?
1: I do love my family, and it was crazy. You know, like I think that's a lot of it. And you know, I over, I kind of I kind of think about my time at CrowdStrike as two different times. I sort of the first couple years, I worked hard. It wasn't first year Kirkland hard, but it was it was it was a lot. I mean, it was a cybersecurity company, and we're you know you're protecting people, and you have to work on weekends and nights, and we're expanding and everything like that. And so, you know, I worked hard and then after, after sort of my four year vesting period. So when you get, when you join sort of a pre IPO startup, oftentimes you have a, a vesting period for the equity, the, the stock that you get and it was four years. And so that was sort of where the bulk of the money I made from CrowdStrike came. And so like the day I hit it, I gave, I tried to give notice and I tried to quit. And they were like, no, like, you just need a break. Like, you're clearly burnt out and you're psychotic and work way too much and just need a break. And so they gave me a break. And so I just took, like, a sabbatical, like, from work. Like, a you know, they just let me, you know, like, a paid sabbatical. And I took three months and kind of reevaluated things. And I came back to a different role um and so i supported like our engineering team instead of our sales team because as you know sales are the worst <laughs> and, but we're always think we are the best right and um so i kind of switched roles and it became you know it, i was still working but it was it was it was much more flexible schedule you know one of the issues with sales you had a
0: four-hour work week i
1: had a four-hour work week i did the the fairish guide to uh was the four-hour four-hour work week yeah i i did that and you know, I, and I did much better at, like, protecting my time, and, like, I, you know, I coached my son's t-ball game and t-ball team, and I never missed a practice or a game, and I was still, like, I think I was, I was a better dad, like, I think I was more available, and I've always worked, from, I've worked from home all this time, so I'm, I'm here, but I'm sort of, work. I was working a lot. I think I became a better dad um, over those last few years, just more available and, and kind of made sure I prioritized, like, I'd go into his preschool and volunteer and stuff like that, but, You know, I I was still felt like I was missing things. You know, it was one of those, nothing major. It's not like I was missing, like, you know, graduations or or even T-ball games. But I was missing, like, hey, they're going to the museum for the day. And I wasn't going because, you know, even in my four-hour work week, I can't I do have to work. And so, like, I can't take five hours off on, you know, Tuesday and go to a museum and lunch. Well, especially
0: with that attitude. <laughs>
1: especially with that. I, I just didn't aim high enough was probably the problem. And so, you know, it, it was it was that kind of thing that I felt like I was missing. You know, like they were going to the pool for three hours on, you know, from noon to three on Thursday. I just couldn't do that. You know, like I'd have calls and things like that. And even protecting my time, it was it – was, I felt like I was missing that, and I didn't want to, and, you know, we can talk about the financial side of, of sort of early retirement and stuff like that, but on the emotional side, that's where I was, is, you know, like, I had, I have young kids, I, you know, I had a good job, but, you know, I, I didn't want to spend my time doing that, I wanted to spend my time
0: doing other things. So, before we get into the official retirement, the sabbatical was interesting to me, Mm -hmm. so, obviously, they were doing their best to, to coax you to be like, Hey dude, you need to chill out. Like it's fine. You're acting like a psychopath <laughs> Yeah. that three months. I'm curious, were you able to fully remove yourself to a point where like, I, I now know what it feels like to be quote unquote retired.
1: Uh, I, I did a good job removing myself from work. I, I like uninstalled email from my phone. I never logged. I didn't log in the entire time like, just never checked in. Like, I got a couple of texts, like, from my boss, just like, hey, I don't know what this is, and I just got this email from our CEO or something about something you're working on. What is this? And I'd, like, get, you know, I'd talk to her and do it. But New
0: phone, who dis? <laughs>
1: new phone, who dis? Um, and so I did a really good job kind of breaking. I, I think one of the problems was it was it was only three months, and I knew that, and so I kind of, I kind of got into a nice rhythm outside of work, but I... I, I don't think I I committed to a lot of things that sort of maybe more long term like I had this dream and we'll talk about sort of what I'm going to do in retirement now I, I've always wanted to write a novel and I sort of started doing it but in three months it didn't feel like enough time so then I kind of put that on the back burner and didn't really commit to it and just kind of fell into other rhythms so it, it, it was sort of like a, it was a good break and it was nice and it I kind of got more involved as a you know as a dad and and more involved at at home and kind of gotten to more of that rhythm but i I'd, it was short enough and it, i knew it was temporary that i didn't really look for like the next big thing i think that's that's what i was missing from that was sort of, and that's, I'll talk about what I want from early retirement, but part of it is that next big thing, like I want to make a positive impact, and in three months, there was not. I didn't feel, whether that's just an excuse, or whether that's that's true, I didn't feel like it was enough time to really like commit to something like that, and so I ended up not, and so it ended up being a really good break, but not sort of a a springboard to the next big thing.
0: Yeah, so that's interesting, because I've always read that in your first six months of retirement, that you should basically not commit to anything so that you can actually just decompress and take the time and not just overcommit yourself right away. And so the fact that you were only on a sabbatical for three months makes sense, right? You're not going to commit yourself anyways. Um, and you know, you that you know, it's temporary. I think that that was a big thing. Like in the back of your mind, it's like, sure, this is nice, but I'm going back, whatever that, whatever that looks like. So when you, when you thought about you started thinking about retirement, even more, right? You tried one time, they did the sabbatical. Now, okay, now you're in a little bit, maybe better of a job. You can manage your time a little bit better. So now you've gone from, I'll, I'll put it in percentages. You're working a hundred percent of the time at Kirkland. You're working eight, you know, you're at 80% at your next job, or maybe you're at 50% your next job. I'm more like fifty. Yeah. yeah you're at 50%. <laughs> maybe you jump up a little bit in those first couple of years at CrowdStrike back yep. to 60, 70%. Yeah. And then you get this. You take the sabbatical, so you're at zero percent for three months. Yep. and then maybe you're up to like twenty percent for the last couple of years. I, I'm making up percentages. Yeah, yeah. You, you correct me if I'm it's if probably I'm a little misleading. higher
1: than that at the beginning, but then it starts ramping right. down.
0: <laughs> De escalation quickly. So, so yeah, maybe you go up to forty percent, learn the new role, and then it just yep. like slides down over yep. time. So I think many people would say, because I don't know what your salary was or your benefits, but I'm sure it was fantastic for the mm. amount of hours that you were working. Oh, yeah. Um, and so you're going from, so, so I, can, I can sense a view from people who would say, wait, you're, you're working like literally a couple hours a day maybe. And you're making a great, you're extremely efficient. There's a reason why you can work that. Amount. It's like it's not that you're lazy, it's just that you're extremely efficient at what you're doing. <laughs> why not both? <laughs> <laughs> and then like laziness creeps in, maybe. <laughs> However, but you you've got this like over time where you're only working a couple hours a day, you're making a great salary, mm-hmm. right? You've got benefits for your kids, you've got a little bit of safety in in the income. Yeah. So I think people would say, Well, why not just do that? Yeah.
1: I would say my decision isn't for everyone. But for me, it was it was again going back to sort of that. I, I guess we'll talk about the financial side of it, but I felt like financially, the additional money wasn't doing anything. It was just sort of you know you you, you see it with like athletes sometimes because the the money's the money's public and it's easier to wrap your head around those numbers. But like you see these guys who have you know a twenty million dollar a year co- you know contract and they retire a year early and they just don't get that twenty million. It was like when when you're outside of that, you're like what why would you just, you know, why are you... Just ride the bench, Just dude. ride the bench, uh, you know. Make U- an injury. U- Udonis Haslam this and just hang out for 25 years on the bench and just never play. Like, there has to be a move here. Like, they can't cut you. Like, do this. And But, like, for those guys, it just doesn't matter. You know, like, they already have $100 million. You know, what's an additional, you know, 20, what are they buying with that additional thing? And my numbers aren't anywhere close to that, to be clear. But it's one of those things where... I feel like we're pretty we withdraw a very low percentage of our investments every year to the point where we can sort of sustain our lifestyle kind of indefinitely with the amount we have. And so at that point with the kids where they are right now at sort of a young age, those whatever, five, six, seven hours a day, I'm working eight hours a day they felt important. They felt more important for me to spend my time doing that than to be working. And the pay was great, the people were nice, but it was it was not where I wanted to be spending my day and it was enough of my day that it wasn't like an hour or two where maybe I could just jam it in when the kids are sleeping. It was enough that it was taking away from things I wanted to spend my time on and you know my, we we didn't really get into my why it was one of your questions and I had sort of prepared an answer for it but it was that funny that I'm now bringing it up because I didn't have a good answer for it and I was going to do this but I was going to talk about how my why shift has shifted a lot through my life like you know 15 12 years ago is make as much money as I could for myself like I don't know if you've seen Tangled but the guy's dream in Tangled is to live on a desert island alone surrounded by files of money that was probably the, <laughs> the best way to describe like you know right out of law school what my what my why was, was just like on an island by myself, surrounded by piles of money. And then it shifted, and, you know, five years ago, it was be the best provider I could for my family, you know, like provide, make sure that everyone's, we can have the foods we want, we can live in the house we want, we can go to the schools we want. And I, I think over the last year or two, it kind of shifted again, and it, you know, I felt financially like we're pretty, we're fine, and so it's more you know, I want to be the best dad I can be. I want to be the best husband I can be. And I want to make a positive impact in the world. And, you know, you work in, you, you work in corporate jobs too. So I think you understand that it, it, it can be hard to feel like you're making a positive impact when you're selling a product and supporting people. Dude, the products.
0: software that we provide, <laughs> definitely. No, no, i yeah. right there with you. And
1: I'm, you know, and I'm a lawyer, at least a salesperson is like selling. I was like helping. I was like behind them making the sales process a little bit worse. With, like my thing. So It's not even like, even though like, we sold cybersecurity. So like you can get there as sort of like, hey, cybersecurity, we're helping people. Like, But like I wasn't. I wasn't like creating, you know, antivirus software. I was. Making the contract, I was making the sales process slightly worse. Most people would say, <laughs> and so you know, it, it just felt like you know it was a it was a good job, good benefits, good people, good hours, but it wasn't where I wanted to spend my time. And my why might shift. I mean, like I, I want to make a positive impact, and right now I think that's best. Not working a job, like you know, I want to be here, volunteer at the kids' schools. You know, coach. We have basketball coming up. I'm going to coach basketball, I think, and coach t-ball again or coach baseball again in the spring. But, you know, maybe when the kids are in school full time and it's full day, maybe I'll change. Maybe I'll want to go and be sort of the first lawyer at a company and see if I can make more of an impact there or something. I, I, I really don't know. But my why has shifted quite a bit over the years, and, you know, I think it'll continue to. But for now, you know, when I have the flexibility to do it and I realize I'm in a pretty lucky position to do that, I'm going to follow it. You know, I'm going to I'm gonna follow the why and, and kind of spend my day the way I want to and not necessarily, you know, do what makes the most sense, <laughs> which I'd acknowledge is probably just, you know, grinding it out and continuing to
0: work. I love that you brought up the why and shame on me for not having asked that yet, but it's okay. I, cool. dodged, I
1: dodged the question anyway. <laughs> so I brought it up just to dodge it, <laughs>
0: <laughs> but cool that you have put thought into it. And I, I think it's extremely common that why has evolved. My why has certainly evolved. Yeah. And my why right now is to be there for and with others. And that includes my friends, my family, and just maximizing the time and attention that I can do that with. It's one of the reasons why I started this podcast, because it allows me to to be there with others and for others, hopefully in some form or fashion in their life.
1: Now I feel bad that my why didn't include you and you included me and in your why. So now I feel guilty. That's so. okay. We'll continue the we'll, pod, but I don't know if our friendship will continue <laughs> we'll, after this. We'll have to, we'll have to update my why. My why is constantly evolving. So now it's friends and family.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm very curious in this topic because I've read a lot about financial freedom and all these different things. And with my dad passing five years ago, it was, it, it's been in the forefront of my mind. Like, Wait, we're, we have finite time. Mm-hmm. I've got little kids. I've seen that my dad worked until he was over 60 and then, you know, had all these grand visions for retirement and all these passions that he wanted to pursue. And he, you know, he died. Yeah. It's just like, that's it. Right. And so I definitely, I know we'll weave in the, the financial freedom aspect of this, but as you think about the last couple of years as you're like winding into retirement, what were the variables, and these could be emotional, financial, whatever, however you want to, but what were the variables that you considered?
1: Yeah, and obviously the first one is financial, like can, can we afford it? You know, like are we, and, and I think there's two parts to it. There's, Are we saving enough for our lifestyle right now? And then the second is how are things going to change? You know, how, do we have enough flexibility to adjust for changes going forward, knowing I'm leaving a safe job and it's harder with kids, you know, you, you, I think you have to build in more of a thing, you know, like we live in a great school district and we love our public schools right now, but you know, politics can change. Like if we need to change it, if we need to move to a different school or, you know, whether it's private school or, or move to a different district or something, could we do that? Cause I don't want to, you know, I don't want to destroy my kid's life or like not give them the opportunities I could because I wanted more, you know, flexibility. And so I think I think that's the financial side. And then emotionally or I think it's just am I a lot of people and I don't mean this in a negative way, just get a lot of their persona from their job. you you meet a lot of people and it's It's their their identity. Yeah. It's the first question is, you know, what, what do you do? You know, and then there's sort of a a series of judgments that come when you get that answer. It's salespeople. Oh yeah. Okay. Let's calm down, man. (laughs) But you know, like lawyer, Oh, I'm going to go find someone else to talk to, you know, like things like that. And I think it's hard. You have to sort of have an identity outside of that. And, And I wanted to make sure I had one and was comfortable kind of, having a life outside of work where like my first question can't, you know, my first answer is not going to be, you know, Hey, I'm a lawyer. And then sort of have that springboard into conversation. I need a pivot and I need something else to talk about. And I need, you know, Hey, I'm a dad, I'm a t-ball coach, I'm a writer, I'm a whatever it is. I'm a Duke fan to annoy all my UNC fan friends, and so, you know, you need to have that different identity, and then, you know, the other thing I took into account that I spent a lot of time on was sort of how my family felt, like, you know, how, how my wife felt, like, does she want me not working, like, does she like me in the office sometimes, like, is it like, hey, maybe you could go in there and just, like, close the door and work on a contract and leave me alone, and... To be honest, I think probably sometimes she does. But I've I've tried to be more cognizant of when she needs some time, like, just, hey, I want to be by myself. It's not me kind of being like, hey, I'm bored. Let's hang out. Holy, you're hovering again. (laughs) And then, like, the kids, too. I mean, I got young kids. Am I setting a bad example? Like, you know, I worked hard, but they didn't see me at Kirkland. They didn't see me the first years at, at CrowdStrike. They didn't see me in law school. They didn't see all that. Are they going to be like, oh, life's super, work's super easy. Look at this. Dad just hangs out around the house and does nothing. You know, and my my wife's a stay at home mom. So it's, they see that. But are, you know, are they going to get a weird view of the world having two sort of stay at home parents? Is that, and and I thought about it and I was like, you know what? I've talked to, we have a lot of nieces and nephews. We have 10 nieces and nephews that vary from 18 down to to five. And I've talked to them about their, their parents and their jobs they don't know anything about their parents' jobs. <laughs> like they have like a vague idea, but like it's not like they're like, you know, watching how many hours they work or anything like that. And, and so in my mind, I think being there for your kids and sort of being, being stable and being sort of, hey, when I need help with homework, when I want to learn this, when I want to do this, dad's there. That's what I felt was most important. Having said that, my kids are very young, so I might be totally wrong on my parenting thing. But it was an important thought. You know, it's an important way to think about it and sort of, and I think it goes to one of my whys in retirement. It's like, I want want there to be the next big thing. Like, I want to make a positive impact. I don't, I'm not just, you know, the plan isn't to watch TV all day although there are lots of sports on, so I am watching more <laughs> sports. But, um, you know, I, I, it's not that. And so I, I, I think that's that's an important part of it is I think how you retire and what you're looking for is, I, I, you know, I'm not looking to go live on a beach and start drinking at noon and watch TV all day. Like that's not the... are like
0: 1.30. 1.30, yeah,
1: it's 5 o'clock somewhere. Um, so, you know, it, it, I think that that's important. But that, those are sort of the main things I thought about. Oh, and then the last one I ta- thought about is I've always been big into like flexibility. Like, you know, I went to, I went to a good law school. I went to a good firm. And the, the idea of going to the good firm was, Hey, I can get another job if I need to, I can always do this. And it's, it's always sort of like, I've always had the back, the backup plan. Like, Oh, what do I do if I do this? And part of leaving was, is scary. You know, you're sort of leaving that, that guaranteed paycheck and kind of putting more faith in like stock market and stuff like that, which is scary. And you know, it's like, what happens if I leave? Like, what what can I do? If it, if it turns out that like every bad thing happens and the, you know, 1% chance of all this failing, all of that happens, what can I do? And it, I sort of thought about it and I was like, I think I could do it. I think I could take, if worst case, I hate it. I, you know, go into a, a spiral emotional spiral i'm useless just laying around watching tv all the time the stock market's totally tanked. people get hurt or sick and
0: i'm still hovering around meg i'm
1: hovering around meg and she's like go find a job i think i could find one in the next year or two like pretty easily and i i think that- Gave me the confidence to kind of make a leap, where you know, m- wasn't the my- most financially sound decision for sure. I mean, the most financially sound decision is never retire, work until you die, and then you never have to worry about retirement, um, <laughs> for retirement. But I-, I think this is such a critical time in my kids' lives. This was actually the biggest driver. Was work was like I said, work was going well. Like it was a good job and nice people and everything, but. My youngest is in half-day preschool three days a week. My oldest just started kindergarten. They're home all the time, and there's a very finite amount of years where that is the case. Even, like, I've seen it because the nieces and nephews and stuff, and, and I, you know, see where they go. By 16, they're they they're out of the house most of the time. Like, they can drive themselves. They're, that's not that long from now. And, like... You know, when they're in college and stuff, a lot of people time their retirement to, like, even people who retire early, a lot of it time it to their kids leaving the house. It's like, hey, my kid's going off to college. My last kid's going off to college. I'm empty nesters. Now I'm retiring. To me, that seemed totally backwards. I was like, I want to spend my time with my kids. I don't want to work up until the day they leave and then be like, hang out in an empty house. Like, I'm more likely to go back to work at that time, at, like, go find a full time job at that time than I am to but I want this time where I I can sort of be with them the maximum amount of time. And so that was, that was probably the biggest driver on the timing.
0: It does seem backwards because I've thought about that too. The most natural thing would be for us to work from the time we leave university until maybe we're about 30 to 35. Mm -hmm. And then from 35 to 50, if you're having like the traditional kids and whatever, 35 to 50, like that's when you have your health. That's when you have your time. That's when hopefully you have a little bit of money saved up you've worked for those first 12 to 15 years yeah. and then you have the time whether you have kids to spend time with them in the, in like the crucial developmental years of their life right. or whatever hobbies or things or inter, the energy you can devote to those things and then at 50 or 55 is you know you go back for 10 12 years whatever whatever's like that seems to be the more natural thing instead we're retiring at 60, 65, 70 when your health is declining, when, sure, you maybe have some money, but you have way less time, you have way less energy, less health, and yet, kid, if you have kids, kids are out of the house, so it's, it's definitely backwards, and our society is not set up for that non-backwards way of doing it.
1: It's not, and like, you know, I, I, I've been incredibly lucky in my career to make enough money to have the option to do that, it's... I followed finan I followed sort of what they call the fire movement: financial independence, retired early. I followed it for a while, and I've sort of saved, you know, a good percentage of my paycheck for years. You know, long before I started the CrowdStrike, but I, I, w- I, still, even with that and with a really good paycheck, would not have been able to retire at thirty without some luck. Like, you know, we went public. You know, my first company got bought. And, you know, those things are are the luck that moved it from maybe mid late 40s to mid to late 30s. I mean, that was that's what it is. And like I think about it and it was even with that, even with having a really good paycheck and saving a really good percentage of my uh, of it. I still would have been retiring about the time that, like, the kids are going to school, like, going to college. Like, that would have been it. And so, like, I I, I don't want to throw away that opportunity. Like, I'm, I'm throwing away a money opportunity. But there's there's other considerations, too. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm throwing away, you know, I think on the financial side, too many people think about just in terms of money. Like, but there's also the you know what are you giving up on the other side your health your you know your family your time with your family and all that stuff and i mean that that matters too and it's it's not as easy to put in a spreadsheet so it's harder to to sort of judge the same way but it's there and it's real and you, you know there's an opportunity cost to missing that too and that's that's where that's sort of where i'm at now is i i have the option to do it so i'm taking the taking option
0: b The, the spreadsheet aspect I've gotten way better at because I've always been very spreadsheet driven in anything that I do. I read, uh, the, uh, psychology of money by Morgan household, which, yeah, that's a good one. And it kind of like reinforces the thought that sure, I have debt on my house and I'm paying at a low interest rate. The psychological benefit of paying that off is unquantifiable or the psychological benefit of me being able to go to the park whenever I want with my kids unquantifiable. Sure. The spreadsheet says I should work four more years or seven more years or whatever, but there are elements of your life that can't be captured on a spreadsheet or the elements that are captured on a spreadsheet. And it says, don't pay that loan off or don't do this because it doesn't make any sense. But the, the weight of it that is on you, because you have that, it is worth paying it off or paying it down because Even though the spreadsheet says, no, that's silly. You should go put that money in the stock market and let it grow 7% versus paying off your 2% loan. The weight is unquantifiable. And I think that that's an important concept too. And so I want to dive into your, your why and like the wanting to make an impact and all that. I think that's like post-retirement conversation. So as you, as we think about the financial aspect of, of this, what rules of thumb or what did you leverage to say, I know I'm comfortable and I know we have enough.
1: Yeah. So I think if you if you if you spend any time in sort of the the fire movement and that's what I call it even though I think it's a bit pretentious but that's okay. Um, a lot of people got started on the same blog post. There's one blog post that's like the most famous one, and you'll see it referred to if you if you kind of hang out on the the blogosphere with with fire. And it's this shockingly simple math behind early retirement. And it's this guy, Mister Money Mustache. That's his name. That's the blog name. And he he it, it's this incredibly you know famous in this world post and basically what it talks about is it, it kind of puts all the rules of thumb into one kind of blog post and then there's a chart at the end and the idea is the more you save the earlier you can retire very simple thing but it, it takes these if you save five percent of your salary, then you can retire in fifty years and basically what it does is you know if you're making a hundred thousand dollars. If you are only spending 95000 then you're saving 5000 and then you need to save enough to pay that $95,000 a year. So, you, you know, that's, that's the generic math behind it. And it goes down to you're saving, you know, 50%. Now it's only 12 years. You know, if you're going down to you're saving 95%, it's two years. And the reason the math switches so quickly is not only are you saving more, but you're also spending less. So, like, you know, if you retire and you're spending 30000 a year, you can retire on a lot less, you know, your nest egg needs to be a lot less than if you need to, you know, spend 100000 a year. And it's just, that's just basic math. And this is all things that like, if you think about it, it's All obvious. this stuff is common sense. Right.
0: But the fact that it's, it, it, but like it needs yeah. to be read multiple times and people need to, Right, synthesize it, and it's hard to apply it to your life. It like, is,
1: yeah. And this chart is great because it just shows you, like, hey, if you save eighty percent of your salary, this is how long until you retire. And and the rule of thumb that it's using, and it's a pretty common one, is is what's called the four percent rule. And what it is is it's based on this study. It's called the Trinity Study, and it looked at basically the modern stock market and modern investing. And if you have a balanced portfolio, it says that over a thirty year retirement, you should be able to withdraw four percent of your Investments, your nest egg, whatever you want to call it, every year, and have enough money for that thirty-year retirement. Now, mine's hopefully going to be a lot longer than thirty years because, like I said, I'm thirty-seven. But that's a good starting point. So basically, what you can do is you look at how much you have total invested, like the total money, and this includes your four hundred one k, you know, IRAs, your just brokerage account, and multiply it all by four percent, and you know, point zero four, and just see that's how much you can withdraw per year for a 30 year retirement. And you kind of do that based on how much you're actually spending. And now me, I'm I'm both, you know, somewhat risk averse and also, you know, plan on having a much longer than than 30 year retirement. So I, I aim for more like two percent. It's, it's aggressive, but it sort of gave me the confidence that I could leave and not sort of like totally screw over my family and stuff because I, you know, am the sole earner in our family. And so that was sort of the number that I was kind of aiming for without a lot of thought into it. And, I, you know, my job was good and I liked it and stuff like that. So it's, it wasn't a huge burden and worth making a lot of money and especially in the post-IPO world. So that was sort of the rule of thumb is, is some percentage of your, investment four percent is kind of a good starting point if you don't really know much about if you're not you I get I have a lot of spreadsheets so I kind of go well beyond it but four percent is a really good starting point to just kind of get a sense of where you're at and the other number you need to track is the amount you spend because that's that sort of once you get that and you, you know I use credit cards for almost everything I, I play sort of the credit card churning re- reward game and everything to pay for a lot of vacations So it's easy to track it all because you can just sort of see the credit card bill. And I used to be really granular. Like I used to assign like everything, like, oh, that's grocery, that's gas. Now I do it much more high level, like, hey, we're spending X amount per per month. And, you know, I track everything. Even now, you know, maybe especially now, (laughs) not working. We sort of track everything we spend in a month. And you can sort of compare that of, you know, you compare your last year of spending, and you compare it to four percent of your investments, and that's sort of the delta that you need to, to do. So if you have a million dollars, your four percent rule says you can withdraw about forty thousand a year. If you're spending eighty thousand a year, you know you need to get that million up to two million. And so that's that's sort of ultimately the rule of thumbs that that apply, and it's pretty simple. I mean that, and that's the the shockingly simple math behind early retirement. It just uses those num like it uses that four percent rule, and gets you there. And then once you get close. You, you play around with it. Like I worked two extra years and kind of blew past the number that I was looking at and, you know, it helped. And, but ultimately it just comes down to how much you're, how much you're spending and how much money you have saved. And I say it, I say it ultimately like that's such a simple thing. And it is, it's simple in the same way that like losing weight is simple in that, eat less calories that you know than you burn but it is a it is quite difficult in the real world and i there are a lot of situations that it is hard to do but if you if you make money and you sort of if you make enough money to sort of be in this world you can do it you just have to prioritize and you know one of the things i like to say is or i don't say it i don't think i've ever said it. i don't know why i said that. you're about to though i'm about to so i'm gonna have said it for time. one of the things I've, I've read that i really like is um you can afford anything but you can't afford everything So, like, we spend our money, we spend pretty freely on on things like food. Like, we get really good food. Like, we get, like, you know, we have, like, a CSA, so we have, like, local farm delivery, and we do, like, organic meats and organic eggs and all that stuff. And So your
0: meat sweats are organic? The
1: meat sweats are now organic, Not, not like when I was going to the Brazilian steakhouses. And, you know we spend money on that, but then like things we don't care about, we cut it to the bone. Like we have like, we have Mint Mobile. We have like the cheapest cell phone plan in the world. Cause I don't care. I don't want to spend, you know, a hundred dollars a month with Verizon or AT&T. We spend 30 as a family. Like, we are a one car family. Like we can afford two cars. Like it's not like we couldn't, but I work from home. My wife's a stay at home mom. Our kid takes the bus to school. Like we just don't need two cars. It's just not, Like at this stage in our life, we don't need it. So, why would we do it? And so, I don't judge people who have different priorities than me. People do. Like, we travel a lot too. And so, like, we, but a lot of our trips are like road trips. We go to the beach, we go to the mountains. And so, I think everyone has different priorities. But I think that's a big part of it is kind of figuring out where you want to spend money and then spending it there, but not spending it on the, you know, cut everything else to the bone. That's, that's sort of our philosophy. And that's how we got our spending down to where we wanted it. And, um, I know I'm just, I I know I'm just rambling here, but the other, the other sort of thing that I've read that, that always kind of resonated with me was sort of design the life you want and then save for it. So don't just cut everything and spend no money. And, you know, my, my old dream of living on the desert Island alone with my, surrounded by my piles of money, it's totally irrelevant. You know, that's not a helpful or healthy lifestyle. Instead, like figure out how much, you know, design, like we picked the house we loved and we want to stay here forever. And, you know, we, did all this, you know, this is how much we want to spend on food and here's how much we want to spend on this. And then figure out how much that costs and then do the 4% rule off of that. Like, that's how we did It's sort of designing the life and then saving for it. Yeah, because you
0: can be a lot more intentional yeah, that way. Instead yeah. of just like, oh, this is just what we do now. Right. We didn't really just like inertia just brought us to this moment.
1: Exactly. And I think it, I think it's very easy. Inertia is kind of keeping on the same path is always easiest and it's kind of spending what you make is the default like you know when our company went public like everyone bought really nice cars everyone did it's just the thing to do like everyone had a Tesla like after we went public like I didn't I paid off our house and invested the rest of the stock market we still have our same Honda Accord that I've you know we've had for years and you know it, it whatever if you want a Tesla get a Tesla Tesla's are great like we will probably get it you know an electric car for our next car but I, I think a lot of people do it not because it's necessarily intentionally what they want it's just I have money now I will spend it. I, you know, I, we go out to eat six days a week because, not because we love going out to eat, but just because that's what we do. Like, it's just kind of an inertia thing. And I, I think it's hard to be intentional like that. And, you know, it's, it's one of the things I think we're, we're pretty good at as a family is kind of being intentional. And, um, I think, I think that's kind of our, our superpower when it comes to saving money. And I think we also luck out because we have a lot of really cheap, like our, the way we spend our time is cheap. Like we go for walks. We like to read. So we go to the library all the time. You know, we... Nerd. Nerd alert. We have sports courts in our neighborhood and we go and play, you know, pickleball or tennis or, or basketball. We just play in the backyard with the kids. Like that's what we do for fun. We watch, you know, sports games and... <laughs> sports games. like I've never watched a sporting event in my life the way I said that. Sports games. <laughs> sports ball. <laughs> sports ball. Sports ball. Uh,
0: (laughs) so excited to leave that one in
1: uh so yeah so you know i i I think we lucked out on that and like i like to cook so we don't go out to eat very much because i think i'm i can cook better than most restaurants most easy restaurants and i like it like i enjoy it like i spend an hour and a half in
0: your face local chefs right
1: exactly and there are really good restaurants too and we go out every now and then but like that's (laughs) sorry guys um (laughs) And so, you know, I, I think being intentional there is sort of what, what what we've done and has been really successful for us and that and uh, being very lucky with sort of salaries. Sure,
0: sure. Oh, no, there, there's a lot of luck involved, but hard work as well. And I think so diving a little bit deeper into the expenses aspect. So, OK, you come up with your number. You say, OK, we currently will use one hundred thousand dollars. We currently spend one hundred thousand dollars today. So that means at two percent, the math says what you need, five million dollars. Okay, in the, in the 2%, you would need $5 million, um, and then that way you have a very high probability that you'll never run out, assuming that you yeah. don't increase. And I think that actually that rule, that 4% rule, accounts for inflation yep. as well. It so does. if inflation goes up 10% in a crazy year, you just add $10,000, mm-hmm. yep. it's, and it's and okay, because one year inflation will be 1% or 2% or nothing or whatever. So yep. your your power, your consumer power remains the same. Yeah, so it yeah. actually accounts for that.
1: Yeah. So over in the modern sort of stock market, especially the the American stock market, which is sort of the easiest one to track because some of the other ones have gotten a little screwed up, like, like Germany's or Russia's like during the wars have like obviously went way down. So it's hard, to, it's hard to get the numbers exactly right. But basically in the U.S. stock market, it's returned about 7% a year after inflation, sort of over its time. And that includes like the Great Depression and, you know, the dot-com burst and all that stuff. And so... In theory, even with the four percent rule, most of the time you ended up with more money at the end of the thirty years than you did before. Even after, like after inflation, like you know, you end up, you know, if you retire with five million dollars, you ended up with seven million. Even with like the four percent, when you get down to like two percent, you almost always, end, like over over the history of like the modern markets, you've always ended up with more money at the end of 30 50 years
0: yeah and i've actually seen that research done even if you retired like the month before the great depression mm-hmm. that it actually still right it, it still holds true right and okay. so on the expense side so let's say that let's use a hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars as the the hypothetical expenses you talked about okay we we don't know about the unknown like i we don't know about our kids and what the needs are we're gonna have to move so how do you factor in okay it's a hundred thousand dollars today how do you factor in that that risk of, of, of unknown?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you just build in more buffer. It's sort of how you do it. Like, so what we do is for instance, like healthcare, like healthcare is a major scary point for a lot of early retirees. And because sort of when, you know, your employer subsidized, most employers subsidize your health insurance, so you don't really notice the, the costs in there. And then when you get to 65, you can go on Medicare, but there's sort of that gap in between for early retirees.
0: And You've just got a small gap of...
1: Just a small gap of... 28 30, years. 28 years. And um, so, but... But this is actually something where the Affordable Care Act or Ob- Obamacare has really helped, in that you can you can go to their website and just see what a plan costs. And right now they do heavy subsidies if you sort of your income's at a certain level. And with a family of four, our income is actually there where we would get subsidies. Like we would have to artificially inflate our withdrawals in order to get out of the subsidies, which. We don't want to do because we want the subsidies as long as they're there.
0: And you're talking about income now. When you say income, it's pulling from the market. Right,
1: yeah. It's, it's dividends, and it's also selling selling from the market. But, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think what, what we did is for our budget, we, we assumed that, you know, the, all the subsidies go away. And we're maxing out sort of our out-of-pocket maximum. So if you're not super familiar with insurance, there's, there's a couple of different ways you pay. You pay a premium, so every month you just pay the insurance company whether you use it or not. Then you pay the first you know $10,000, whatever it is, as a deductible. So you pay 100% of that cost. And then from the deductible to the out-of-pocket maximum, you pay a percentage. The insurance company pays some percent, you pay the other part. And then out of after the out-of-pocket maximum, the insurance company pays 100%.
0: Right, so you have a $20,000 bill, you pay the first 10,000, yep. you split the next 5,000, 50-50 as yep. an example, and then the, the last 5,000, insurance covers yep. it. And so
1: for, so for us, for our budget, what we, what we did was we assumed that we would have to pay 100% of the premiums, which right now, The Affordable Care Act is is pretty heavily subsidized. And then also, we assume that we would have to pay up to the out-of-pocket maximum, which we're a pretty healthy family. Like, we've never really approached that even on our employer plan. But just, you know, so we can pay our medical bills, it's important to budget that. But it gives us a lot of flexibility. Like, if that doesn't happen, like, if the Affordable Care Act subsidies remain, and if we're not, you know, maxing out those, it's a whole bunch of extra money that can go to other things so I, I think I think we were joking about this when I was when we were talking about health insurance uh, like a month ago or whatever was that the plan is just for my family never to get hurt or sick so as long as that happened no. So, so no we so we budget for that and that gives us a lot of flexibility you know like we we have quite a bit of of give in our budget and and I said two percent and two percent is sort of what we aim for, but really I'd be comfortable with sort of with the length of my retirement up to 3% and even going up to like 4% for a few years, you know, like if, if in, uh, you know, we sort of saved, uh, I'll give an example of sort of where we, where I think things might change is we kind of saved enough in college savings plans to go to UNC. That was sort of like UNC state, like a a state public school,
0: but not Virginia, not,
1: not Virginia. Absolutely not. And, um, we, uh, so we did that. But, like, if they go to, like, Harvard or something, if they can get into Harvard, like, we'd like to, we'd support that too. And so, but that would be a year in which, that would, would be a couple of years in which we'd probably go beyond the 2 3%, probably get up to, like, 4%. But I think we'd be comfortable taking on that risk, and that would be in, you know, whatever, 12 years, and we'd sort of have a better sense of where things are at by then. But, you know, it's it, at a certain point, you just have to take the, take the, Jump, You know, like certain what you can plan, what you can, you feel like you have a reasonable budget. We, we spend a lot on, you know, vacations and things that, you know, we could cut if we needed to, we don't plan on it. And, you know, then you just take a leap and just hope things are going to work out.
0: Who did you rely on to make you comfortable that, Hey, this is like, I've been thinking about this, you know, who, who were your confidants? Like, I mean, it could be people you don't even know, like podcasts or the yeah. fire community. I think emotionally, like
1: my family, my wife, um, who is now in the room behind me, so definitely my wife. Uh, <laughs> um, but I think I think financially, it's mostly people I don't know. You know, I think it's mostly blogs. Is um, I can't remember what the acronym stands for, but it's ERN, and the, he does this like incredibly detailed thing on withdrawal rates and like what what the optimal ones are, and and it it made me feel a lot more comfortable because he's got this like 100-part series on how much you can withdraw, and it was always well above where I was sort of looking, and it just made me feel a lot more comfortable that these numbers were real. There's a bunch of calculators um, that sort of you can plug your numbers into, but the one that always stuck with me, because I think it, it captures something that the others don't, is, is this rich, broke, or dead And it's a a lot of these calculators. You type in your money, how much money you have saved. You type in how much you spend, and it gives you a percentage of success. Like, hey, you do a fifty year retirement, you know, hundred thousand a year. You have four million saved. You have a ninety nine point five percent chance based on sort of the way history goes. What Rich Broker Dead does is that it does the same thing. It shows you, but then it adds in your mortality table too. So as you're, you know, as a fifty year old, you have a four percent chance of dying, whatever it is. As a, you know, seventy year old, you have a thirty percent, whatever it is. And so it's this, it's this graph, but it's kind of terrifying to look at because you see this like death thing go, and then you know, obviously at the end, you one hundred percent end up dead. I, I think it brings into sort of there's, yeah, maybe there's some half percent chance of something terrible happening with the markets or whatever, and not having enough money, but there's a hundred percent chance that in a hundred years you're dead. Like, it's just, Are you sure? I've checked the math on that. And so, but there's, you know, a, and that number, you know, a hundred years is for, it feels like a long time off, but in 40 years is a 40% chance. I mean, that number starts to feel a little bit more like it's coming up in 20 years. It's a five or 10% chance. It's not a nothing chance. And so like, you know, like I, like I said, this you have to make a judgment call on where you want to do it. And at some point it's, you know, it's not the, most financially savvy move to not work and not get paid. But if you ever want to focus on those other things and spend those hours, you have to, you have to take the leap.
0: Yeah. It just reinforces that. I think like the acceptance of, Hey, I'm going to die is like mm-hmm. a very freeing thing. If yeah. you can truly get to that acceptance and like think there's been a lot of philosophers and other people that are like, you should just occasionally think about death, mm-hmm. not to make you sad, just right. realize that that is just inevitable. Yeah. And I think it frees you in it. And then it brings into the point of, you know, the emotional state of what you've talked about of, hey, I want to be there for my kids. Like, I, tomorrow's not guaranteed. Mm-hmm. Uh, next year's not guaranteed. 20 years from now, like, I want to be here. Just from an income standpoint, as we, like, continue to get a little bit tactical and then we can broaden yeah. it. But from an income standpoint, is any of your income not coming from the stock market?
1: No, I mean, investments. So, I mean, we have some, like, you know, we have bonds and we have some, like, uh, CDs and stuff like that. And we have, uh, we invest in a local, like real estate syndicate, like a REIT thing, but, um, no, it's all, I don't have like a job or any the one that pays me. Other, right. Or like other rental properties or nope. other
0: like investments, right?
1: Nope. I'm, I'm very boring. I know you do all you you're, you, you talk a lot with other people about their fun things and real estate and stuff like that. Um, but no, I'm, I'm pure. I'm, I'm totally hands off, totally passive investor in everything.
0: Are you a Bogglehead?
1: I am a Bogglehead. I am a Bogglehead. So for people who don't know, Jack Boggle was the founder of Vanguard, which is um, a big brokerage house. It's, he kind of pioneered low-cost investing, so you can invest in total market funds. So instead of buying, like, you know, Microsoft or Google stock, you buy the total market. So You buy, and they basically a piece of every company, and it's weighted based on how big they are. So Microsoft is worth way more than...
0: Um, like a local,
1: then a, a local public, not a local company, but like a, a you know a small public company. Um, even even like Tesla or something that's a massive company. Google's way bigger than that, and so Google you you own a lot more Google shares, like Vanguard does, and then they kind of sell this total market fund to investors, and that's how you sort of capture that sort of how the market does. And I've always felt more comfortable with that in the sense of like. It, CrowdStrike, when I worked there, they gave us a lot of CrowdStrike stock, and I would always sell it pretty quickly. And my rationale was if CrowdStrike fails, the rest of the world really doesn't care. It's just, it's the way it is. You know, like if we, if it goes down, you know, companies have done that. A lot of companies, if your Enron was huge and then, you know, it went bust, and it happens from time to time. Um, And like Yahoo is, you know, Yahoo is like the it stock, you know, and now it's basically gone. But if the total US market goes, everyone suffers. So I like being in that world of like, yes, there's a chance that, like, you know, especially if you read the crazy conspiracy theories and stuff, the whole market's gonna crash and dollars gonna be gone and everything like that. But if it does, it hardly matters what I'm doing because like, you know, if I retire now versus retire in 10 years, either way, the money's gone
0: and the money's money, gone and the jobs are gone.
1: Right. The jobs are gone. It's not like me working as a lawyer is going to be like, oh, I'm good. The dollar has gone and all of the U.S. economy has gone. And there's nuclear war everywhere. It's like at that point, I'm glad I enjoyed the 10 years. <laughs> and so, you know, I I, I think I, I think that is just, uh, uh, you know, that's where I felt comfortable investing was, you know, I if if a house burns down or something, I know you do like rentals and stuff like that, it's much more local. I think you have a lot I think you generally have a higher return potential. Like I think you can you can if you do the right deals, you can do better. But I think for mine where I was less concerned about sort of getting great returns and more about protecting and still like getting some returns. Yeah. Yeah. Risk it's sort of that risk risk return. And it's also just way easier. Like, my stocks never call me at 2 a.m. and say that my, you know... it's why you my have a property is, manager. Right, that my roof is leaking or anything. So I would sell that stock if it did that.
0: Yeah, no, <laughs> no doubt. But, I mean, like you said, there are other ways. I mean, even, yeah. even if you're not, you know, owning real estate or buying real estate, there For are sure. ways to expose yourself yeah. to the real estate market, like through a REIT and, yeah. and other other means that you still get that diversification yep. without the 2 a.m. phone call.
1: Exactly. And so, you know, I, th- I think... There's no wrong, I'm sure there's wrong answers, actually. <laughs> I think that there's a lot of reasonable answers, and that's just the one that worked best for me. Um, I do have a funny story about uh, crypto, though, because you did mention your crypto thing earlier. When I was at Kirkland just starting out, I didn't know anything about investing. I, I kind sort of became a bogglehead like my third year at Kirkland or something. And my second year, someone sent me an article about Bitcoin. And Bitcoin had just jumped from 20 cents to $2 a coin. And it was this article, and this person was talking about how they were going to invest their entire life savings in Bitcoin. And I was dumb and didn't know anything about investing. And I was like, maybe I should do that. And I kind of looked into mining. And I actually, like, downloaded, like, a Bitcoin miner, $2 of Bitcoin. And I could have bought it. Like, you could buy them. And it was kind of a pain to buy at the time because they didn't really have the same markets. But I was like, no, this is a terrible investment. It doesn't make any sense. And like it already shot up from 20 cents to $2 where could it go from here that's it that's it's already kind of jumped up and so i like i mined it for a few like weeks and i was like now nah, this is stupid i don't like this and then it shot up to like $80,000 and it would have been like and i had money that was the other thing is i worked at kirkland i was making lots of money and i didn't know what i was doing i was the perfect candidate to just like throw a few thousand dollars in there cuz i didn't know what i was doing and instead i was like no and, you know, I, this this early retirement story could have been totally different. I could have been like, you can buy a jet, you can buy an airport, you can do whatever you want because we're rich. And that is not the story I tell today. But I think, I think it's... I, I tell that story to people who, like, when I talk about investing, because I am wrong all the time. Like, I was totally wrong on Bitcoin. And even now, I still won't invest in crypto. I still don't think it makes sense, despite, you know... 10 years of it returning quite a bit and it being, you know, statistically one of the best investments if you, you know, over the last 10 years, I still don't believe in it. And that's okay because I, you know, I I was wrong and I'll be wrong again. And if I'm, I feel like if I was picking individual stocks, I would be wrong a lot, you know, and picking the total market kind of takes that out of your hands. You don't make emotional decisions, you just throw the money in there and then, you know, uh, hopefully the world economy continues. And if it does, we're all okay. And if we're all relying on, you know, cryptocurrency, well, I was wrong again and that's okay.
0: <laughs> well, the the beauty of your approach is that you are maximizing the stuff that you want to do. Right. You're maximizing your time and effort into this and not like, you know, hitting the refresh button and, you know, seeing what your individual stock has done and do I need to sell it and do I need right. to do this and, and all that. So to kind of put a bow on the, on the income piece, it's all coming from, you know, market bonds, like whatever your Vanguard account basically. And the, just in terms of like deciding or automating when that money actually comes into your bank account. Curious tactically, is this like, Hey, I have, I've set aside dividends and I'm just going to let them flow into my bank account, or I'm going to go in every month and I'm going to, click sell on these three things. How does it, how do you go about that?
1: Yeah, I'm much less sophisticated on this than a lot of other people. And to be clear, I'm only like a month into early retirement, so I might get better at this. Um, but what I did is I sort of have some CDs, so um, certificates of deposit. They're just at banks, and they just lock in for a certain period of time. It's like a nine-month one at 5% or whatever, and then the money just shows up in your bank account. And then I have treasury bills, which are U.S. government bonds basically that you know are for a set amount of time and and then it pays it out to you I have those and then I just have a savings account that it's a sort of a high yield savings account and between that I have like we have like three or four years worth of expenses saved and so our plan is kind of totally unsophisticated which is we're going to go with that and then just dividends from the stock from like total market from our brokerage account we're just going to move over to the bank account and just see how long all that lasts and right now our, because we're kind of aiming for a pretty low withdrawal rate, our spend is actually pretty equivalent to dividends. Dividends hover around like 1.5 to 2% of sort of the total amount you have invested. And that's about what we withdraw. So it might be that this will work. It might not. We're going to find out more. Hey, trial
0: and error. And the right. beauty is, is that over that couple of year period that you have like kind of already things set aside is that in an ideal world that it just you leave your stuff untouched right? to just let it grow even right. more. Yeah. The hope is that we'll have more money at the
1: end. Um, and so I am not totally screwing my kids over with inheritances and, you know, I can pay for college and weddings and stuff like that, but we'll, we'll, we'll see. There's a long, there's a lot of years out ahead. So, and like the other thing, The way I think about this is, and and I think we're going to get into the why here and and sort of where we're going, I am retired and I don't need a a sort of full-time job. That doesn't mean I wouldn't get one in the future if there was sort of the right opportunity and I felt like that was the way I could make the biggest impact. I mean, I I have been pretty senior as a lawyer, and it might be that, like— I get out there in this world in which I'm like, I'm not going to be a lawyer anymore. And they're like, yeah, then you're totally useless. And I don't want, you know, you can go, you know, stuff letters in envelopes or something. It might be that like the way I can make an impact is as a lawyer. And I'm not ruling that out. It's just right now that's not that's not where I want to be. So um, there's there, people joke on sort of early retirement blogs and stuff about the retirement police, which is like, if you define retirement as like not making any money from any job, then you're like, if you then you're not actually retired. And I, you know, I think that there's a chance I, I could make money in the future, you know, as a job, maybe even as a lawyer. But for now, that's
0: not that's not what I'm looking to do. Before we get into more of that, is there anything that we've missed in terms of just the the decision point and where you're at today versus like going forward? Is there anything that we've missed that you want to make sure that to highlight?
1: No, I think that's pretty much it. I mean, I sort of financially, we felt pretty secure for a while in terms of the decision and then kind of emotionally, you know, trying to make the job as sort of where I could be as good of a parent as I could. And then realizing that in order to be, still good at my job. I had enough pride in my job. I didn't want to become bad at my job. I I couldn't be the parent I wanted to be right now. And that was sort of the the ultimate tipping point where I was like, no, you know what? I'm going to do this. And then, you know, we'll see where things go from there. Kind of leap off the bridge.
0: So how do you expect to spend the first six months?
1: First six months, most like decompressing, um, kind of volunteering a lot with the kids. You know, the kids are both in schools. They want a lot of parent volunteers. I'm... The last year, I was actually pretty good at this, even though I was still working. I was like one of the few dad volunteers who kind of was in the preschool all the time and would go and do that. And I like that. I want to be involved in, you know, my kid's school and everything like that. Going to teach or going to coach basketball, probably. I coached t-ball last year. I'll probably coach baseball again in the spring. And I'm going to try to write a novel. That's my big that's my big project for me right now is I've always had this dream of writing a novel and I've done it in bits and spurts, but it's hard when you're working and especially like I work in front of a computer. So then the last thing I want to do is sit in front of a computer and type more words. Um, and
0: side note, do you know what I heard at one point is that John Grisham, I'm pretty sure has written all of his books by hand. Like he writes all of like all of it on a legal pad and then someone else writes it. That's crazy. I did not know
1: that wild. Yeah. fun I'm fact. John Grisham, sure Grisham. John Grisham also gave the graduation address at both of our wives' graduation at UNC.
0: Fun fact. Fun That's fact.
1: True. Yeah, so I, I, I'm going to write a novel. Um,
0: okay, I haven't heard about this novel. I yes. want to guess as to what the novel will be about, just based on knowing you and some of the books that you like.
1: Well, this is going to be. It's either going to be really easy or really tough because I have like four ideas right now, and I've sort of written bits and pieces, like, of all of them. So, but go on. So you, okay, you so, have I, so I have
0: a, I have some some chances here because mm-hmm. it could be one of four. Yeah. I know you're super into sci-fi. Yep. And space and all of that. So I yep. think it is going to be space-related. I think that there's going to be probably a main... There's going to be a main character.
1: <laughs> you have nailed this book. <laughs> Facebook with a main character is one of the books.
0: I think that the... I don't think that there are a bunch of characters. I think that there is it is following the the arc of one person mainly, and then other people weave in and out. And um, I'm not going to go further than that because I feel like I'm on the right track.
1: You are on the right track. I have a I'm a sucker for coming of age novels. Um, I am just like, you know, a sort of young adult doesn't even have to be a young adult book, but a young adult sort of as a main character, kind of figuring out their path in life. And I don't I'm. I mean, I guess that's a pretty common theme, but I always it, I like that. And I, I feel like part of it is that I, I still don't know what I want to do with my life. And so I'm always sort of impressed when I hear about people who, like, figure it out. And, like, they're like, this is my path in life. And it's sort of a Harry Potter thing, too. Like, I'm a wizard, and I'm the best wizard, and, like, all this stuff. And it was actually one of the—to uh, prep for this, I, t- I think I told you I listened to knock to your interview with Knockle. And I so jealous. another David. Another that David. I need to go by last that names. We, that we knew in college. That I, I also knew Knockle in college. And um, I, I've always been jealous of him and his vision for his future. He has such a locked in. Like it was like I'm going to go teach high school history, you know, in my old district and do this, and he did it. And like that's incredible to me. Like. I can't tell you like what the six. I'm 37 now, about to turn 38. I can't tell you what six months from now is going to look like. And at 18, he had this vision for the world, and I'm I'm so impressed by people like that, and a little jealous too. And like you know, not that I think I've, I'm a very lucky person, and <laughs> life has worked out pretty well for me. But it, like I still don't know what I want to do with my life, and so uh, I I bring that up for two reasons. One is I think I'm drawn to books like that where it's like you sort of have have a path um and you sort of the coming of age of sort of like hey this is this is me and i figured it out and then two i think it's part of like i i don't have a great answer on where my life is going in post-retirement because i think i'm still figuring it out and still like i don't know what i want to do when i grow up is is still the answer that's sort of me at 37
0: but that freedom that i think you're gonna arrive at or that you're at now is is a great space and i think it's why so many so much um advice is around hey don't commit yourself to a bunch of stuff right away because this is going to be the first time in your life that you're going to have a a half a year or a year to just like literally just go try and figure it out so what it what attract what what am i magnetized towards that maybe i didn't know before right like you've just been on this inertia path we've talked about inertia like Hey, I went to school. Okay, I was supposed to go to school. I went to law school. I was pr- kind of already like my mom was a lawyer. I'm gonna go do that, and then I'm gonna go work for a law firm, and then I'm gonna go like try some other things. These are the stepping stones that make sense, logical sense. So now you're off that staircase, and it's like, oh, now I have the space to just see what, like, as a 37 year old, what, what do I want to do?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's it's funny that it's funny you describe my life like that because at the, there was a lot of pivots in there that felt like it feels very linear when I look back on it. And I assume like going forward, there's actually a good chance I'll look back and be like, oh, obviously like that's what I did after retirement. But like at the time, like I was actually a chemistry major at UNC and I was like, I'm going to work in a lab. I'm going to be a professor. And then I realized I hated it after like a year. And I was like, nope, not going to do that. And then I was sort of about to graduate, you know, I was coming up on my last year and I was like, I need a to figure out what I want to do, and so I like applied to law school and did well in the LSATs and ended up going to going to law school. And then I was like, well, I have the chemistry background. I'm going to be a patent lawyer. I'm going to like write patents. You know, cutting edge technology. Like, do all that stuff. And I started, I did like one, and I was like, this is the worst thing of all time. This is so boring. And so I decided not to do that. So then I was like, I'm gonna do litigation. I can do, like, I know the technology, I can do litigation. And so I started, and I did like one day of that. And I was like, this is awful. This is, you have to be in front of people and like argue with the other side. It's very contentious. So I kind of backed into transactional work, like, you know, doing deals, like commercial deals. And I was like, oh, this is fine. Like, it's much less contentious. You're kind of working together with the other side. And then I kind of worked at Kirkland and then I was like, I need something else and kind of jumped to the first job that sounded like it was like a good lifestyle. Like it, I didn't know anything about the company. Like the boss was great. I met him. I like talked to him and he was like, he was a really nice guy. It seemed like a good lifestyle. And I was like, I'm done. I didn't even know like what the company did. I was, I, it's, it's a software it was like a software consulting company. I still barely can explain it, but, and then it got bought and I was just going to stay there. And then it got bought and I was like, well, I need another job. And then like, CrowdStrike kind of popped up, and I was like, "It works from home. I can do it." And so it it all felt very random at the time, but looking back, it's like, "Oh, look at that linear path like law school and law firm and you know in house and there it is." And so you know, I think I'm pretty good at kind of pivoting when I need to. And so, uh, but it, it's it's a little scary in the moment some some of those jumps. But uh, now I'm now I've definitely jumped. So now we'll see where things go from here. Maybe this will be, be the, like the mark in the tragic story and where it turns and, and all the pivots go poorly after this. Well, well
0: this is going to be like episode 39 or 40 or something. And so then like we're going to be at episode 80 and talking and it's like, okay, this is how you don't retire. Right.
1: <laughs> David did not realize how the next few years were going to go
0: um so the but it'll be a great book though right exactly that, that maybe you it'll could make write. it
1: easier to write another book it's about it's about uh there's the uh parks and rec is one of my favorite shows and uh aziz's character he writes the book on like how to fail because he keeps failing at everything that could be mine like how not to retire <laughs>
0: um so you've got me thinking about like you've always been one of the smartest people i've ever met that I think that's one of the gifts that you have. You have many gifts, and one of the gifts you have is being just very intellectually driven and smart and curious about many things. And so it's encouraging to hear that you've thought about how do I reshare those gifts? Like, how do I make an impact? And through, I think books can absolutely do that. You've always been an avid reader. I recall going into, I think it it must have been your the place that you and Galen lived um, off 54, mm-hmm. maybe your junior year.
1: Yeah. off of it, Mount Mar- Oh yeah. You, you oh had, yeah. That one. Yeah. You had your yeah. own, you had your own room. The Verge. I remember
0: going in there. Yeah. The verge. And I remember going in there and seeing like this massive bookshelf mm-hmm. that I know you, I walked by today, walking in your house. It might, it may be even be the same bookshelf.
1: It's different bookshelves, but there are actually two downstairs and there's two upstairs too. So and it was, and it
0: was filled, right? I'm like walking in there as a 20 year old, right? Mm-hmm. Eight, 19, 20 year old. You're roughly the same age. And, I see this bookshelf like full of books, and I remember going over and asking you, like, "Hey, like, tell me a couple, like, about a couple of these. What are your favorites?" And at the time, I was not a very avid reader. Like, I read Harry Potter because obviously, Harry Potter's the best. (laughs) But it's not like I was just like every day or every week picking up a book, and which is what I am now. Like, I, I mean it. It is rare that a day goes by and I'm not reading at least a chapter or two of some sort of book, fiction or nonfiction. But at the time, it was like extremely encouraging and also not surprising to see one of the smartest people I know also have this massive bookshelf—not just for looks, but of actually books that you have read.
1: Well, we don't know; we pretty good looks, right?
0: <laughs> like, I'm curious where where did that insatiable desire to read come from?
1: My mom's big into reading and education and stuff, and always encouraged reading. For me, But I think a lot of it just came from, I, I was alone a lot as a kid, like I, you know, I, I went to private school, and private school is great for the education, but one of the big issues with it is that you're pretty far away from the people you go to school with, it's one of the things like, it's one of the reasons we haven't, aren't doing private school, is that the kids are just spread out at a good private school. Like the kids come from, you know, 30 miles away. And so there were no kids at my school who lived near me. And I went, I uh, lived in like a smaller neighborhood. It's actually massive now, but actually you own a rental house in this neighborhood. It was, like, we were, like, one of the first, like, 13 houses. There were no kids who lived there. Like, we lived there. My sister was five years older than me. My parents worked all the time and were gone. And so, like, I was alone a lot. And, you know, I couldn't drive. I was, you know, I was young and my kids my friends lived far away. So I just read all the time. It was just sort of a thing I did. Like, I, you know, I would read, like, 200 books a year as a kid long ones too like by the time I was like 10 I was reading like, like green eggs and ham like green eggs and ham most of the doctor's uses no <laughs> so like i was reading like you know big novels at you know like 10 11. And I always just felt at home reading. It just, I still, I love to read. And I've always been like, my family is like, oh, you're the biggest reader like I've ever met. Funny enough, my wife reads more than me. Um, She actually, we have like a reading competition and she just destroys me every year.
0: A reading competition?
1: Yes. Do you have, uh, if you have Goodreads, the app, they do like the reading thing and she just like, destroys in terms of
0: like is it pages it's number not of books? pages
1: which which we may be closer because i do read some longer like some of my books are like 900 pages and stuff in terms of number of books she's like 20 books ahead of me every year yeah it's like not particularly close
0: Wow, that's yeah. saying something. Um, but yeah. hey, you're now have more time.
1: Now I can catch up because I have been I have been working job. Although she we, has been, it,
0: the... it took a little bit of time. But now yeah. we realize why you're retiring, right? This exactly.
1: And I mean, she has been the primary parent for the last year, so I don't not sure I have that excuse. But
0: um, yeah. So I sh- I want to shift to what you just said because Whitney and I have had very similar conversations. So if I ever get to the point where I can retire early, mm-hmm. we've talked about like dividing the parenting stuff like it's like it's like that reset like you talked about being intentional earlier about your expenses and designing your life yep you kind of also i think you have to design okay we have assumed traditional roles Mm -hmm. You're stay at home i'm working i'll help where i can basically to oh no now we're both not working so like how did those conversations go
1: i think they're still ongoing is kind of am i
0: I, opening a wound no
1: no (laughs) you're not opening a wound it's just it's a it's a learning process you know like for me i I think I've always felt comfortable not doing as much parenting as my wife because I was working. I always sort of like, even when I wasn't busy with work, it was like, oh, I was working the job this week. Hey, I'm
0: working on my fantasy draft. Could you turn the vacuum down, please? (laughs)
1: Exactly. And so, you know, I I think like psychologically it always made me feel like, oh, like, yeah, she's doing a little bit more with the kids, but I'm, you know, like – all like i worked this week even if today i'm not doing anything it sort of felt like it and i've only been r- early retired a month and our and over the last two years i've tried much harder at being like more of an equal parent because i recognized that she was doing more cause, i mean she said her mom and i was working but i recognized that and so like i've i've always been like the cook and i i've tried over the last couple of years to clean a lot more. I've never been a particularly clean person. My wife's very clean and very good at it. So I've always felt like I was letting her down even by trying because she'd be like, you're so bad at this. But I've been trying more over the last like few years. And like even the last month, we like I've been trying to like volunteer at the school more and divide things up and figure out like where I can be good and she's much better at some things than me and I'm I'm better at her than some things and so we're trying to figure out where our optimal thing is. The one thing I've realized that I'm terrible at versus her, I need sleep. I am like someone who needs eight or nine hours of sleep. I can fake it for a day or two and like I have in like law school and like I've done all nighters at for work and stuff and. It's, I can do it for a day or two, but then I need like a day of sleep to make up for it. And already we're like a week into school for the kids. And already like the, you know, we have to wake up at like 6:50 for, and I'm not a morning person. We have to wake up at 6:50 50, get my, my son to school. And I did it like the first two days. And then the third day I just, I overslept, I just slept through it. And like my wife did it all alone because I was just like too tired to get up. And it's like, you know, it's Thursday on like the second week of school and I'm like unable to make it. And so
0: I don't know if this retirement thing is going (laughs) to work. You may have to go to work pretty soon.
1: (laughs) And so that is not my strong suit, getting up early every day. But I have other things, which is. She's much better. My wife's much better than me at, at operating on little sleep, but she can, she naps sometimes. And I can't nap. When I nap at like, when I go down at 3 p.m., I wake up at like 8 p.m., just like totally groggy. And then I can't sleep that night. It's, I'm the worst at it. But once I'm up, I can sort of make it through the whole day. And so, like, we sort of trade off and I try to give her a break because I was useless all morning. Then I sort of, you know, take over in the afternoon and, you know, I'm cooking and stuff like that. We're, we're trying to find where our optimal things are but you know it's a process you know like I'm around I just have more time now and so like where I can help and where I can't and then sometimes the kids I mean kids are still kids sometimes they're like I just want mom like what are you doing I get you're around all the time but just like back off dad I want mom that still happens and so like you know it's it's an adjustment and we'll you know I I I think we're all figuring out where 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 I'm best suited
0: what are like one two three books that have most influenced your life
1: you know, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay is the book I recommend the most to people. Mostly, I love Harry Potter and I love Lord of the Rings, but everyone's heard of it. I'm not like, oh, look, Harry Potter. <laughs> like, no one, no one's ever like, thanks for the recommendation um, for those books. But and those are some of my favorite books and those definitely impacted me greatly because I, I love reading them and I've read them multiple times. The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay is like I mentioned a, a coming of age story and I love those and it's about two kids one who escapes from it's a, a, a one who escapes from Nazi Germany right before sort of World War II comes to the US and then one who sort of grew up in New York and their cousins and they become they like start writing comic books and it's them sort of finding their purpose in life and like figuring themselves out and I I just it's Michael Chabin's a writer and he's a fantastic writer and it's that is my favorite book and it's the one I recommend it is also like 800 pages so it's quite a commitment but it is just excellent and that's why this that's why the the single book that has kind of impacted me the most was just like it made it also made me kind of want to be a writer like I had sort of had like a came out in like early 2000s I sort of had vague dreams of like, I like books and I like this, but that was the one that I was like, I want to tell a story like that, where it's like, that is like a, it's a human experience. And you're sort of seeing it from his perspective. And it just, it made me want to tell a story like that. And so that's probably the, that's probably the one. I also love Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings and books like that. But you
0: people have heard of those, so
1: that's, that's my, that's my, that's I my have job. not
0: heard of that book.
1: You've not heard of that book? It's a I'm, fantastic book.
0: So I, it is now I would, I very h- high on my list I to go I highly
1: read. recommend it. Yeah, there's a book that came out recently called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. It came out like last year or the year before. And it is somewhat similar. Uh, it's probably the most similar book to that. And it's about these three kids, I guess. But they sort of grow up and they're adults in it too. And they like develop video games together. And it's a similar thing about sort of finding your passion and kind of working together and finding yourself
0: also a good book. Another one. Yeah. Another one to to add to the list. I was actually on my way on my way here. I was thinking about how to. I want to make sure that I'm thinking about the books, not necessarily for this, uh, podcast, but I, you got me thinking about books because I knew we were going to be talking about them and I knew your love for them. But I had a friend who recently just asked me like, what books do you recommend? Mm -hmm. And so I was starting to think about, okay, if I like I was forced to recommend books, like where, where would my mind go? So Anyways, I'll definitely add that to the list. My one of my favorite books, and it's it was turned into a movie, but The Martian.
1: Oh, I love The Martian. Andy Weir's fantastic. All,
0: Project, all Hail Mary, Project Hail Mary. Project Hail Mary is great. Yeah, are, are, uh, Artemis. Yeah, yeah. The Martian is my favorite of the three. Project Hail Mary a close second, but Martian. The Martian. I I don't know. I think I just identify with him. He's just like so sarcastic right. and self-deprecating, but also like really smart in his field of study and everything. And just, I don't know, it, it was, that was always been one of my favorite books. So I got a couple quick hitters okay. and then we can, if there's topics that you're like, Hey, you didn't ask me about this or like, we should talk about this. Let's we can do, do, do that. In the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life?
1: Protecting my time, like, like, like in- intentionally spending my time is Five years ago, I was still working at CrowdStrike and I was working all the time. I was working nights, but five years ago, it's pretty close to when my son was born. I, I think I started for the first time saying no to things at work. And I've gotten, I got much better at that over the years is like figuring out what, what is my responsibility and what are things I, I need to do? Cause it's obviously it's a job. You do need to do things, but what is not like, what is not re- like, what is not an emergency? What is, what is something that can wait? What is something that I can say? No, I'm not going to do that. Or yes, I'll do that, but it's not going to be this week kind of thing. And how do you say no, no is a full sentence. It's sort of the way it sometimes it is, but the way I do it is I try to give context like this is a work, this is now work advice is when I do it is I give context is it's like, hey, it's no because this other person is better suited for this role for for this task for whatever reason. No, because I have this other list of important things to do and, you know, these frankly just seem more important. No, because I disagree with it. No, because, you know, whatever it is or, you know, I've also gotten more honest about and I think that this, I think this was helped by COVID COVID doesn't have a lot of positives, but I think people got more understanding of personal lives at work, at least I found. And I'd be like, no, I have to go to a t-ball game. That was the answer. And people would be like, "Oh, oh, okay. Like people understood that, but I never would have said that five years ago. Like I would have been like, Oh, okay, like I guess I'll I'll skip this and I'll, you know, go do this. It's just a t ball practice. What does it matter? Like, but then it does matter. Like showing up matters to your kids and stuff. And so that's where that's something I got much better at. And now I have way more time, so now I don't have to say no to as much, but um, you know, I might have to come in, you know, in the near future, depending on how much I sign up for. But you know
0: I, I would say it's still gonna be very important to yeah. say no.
1: Yeah. And yeah. so I you know, I think that's I, I think that's something that I've I've gotten I I think has improved my quality of life the best. I I sort of reclaimed my nights and my weekends and took time off during the middle of the day if I wanted to. And I would just say, no, I'm doing
0: something. And And it's amazing how little people care that you told them no.
1: That was sort of the shocking thing. Or like when my hours went down, like we sort of talked about like the percentage I was working. Like I was full tilt at the beginning of CrowdStrike. And then like I kind of came back from my sabbatical and I was still working. I was still working a full-time job, but I wasn't like going crazy and no one cared it seemed like I still got my work done I still got things done I wasn't going as above and beyond but I was still getting it done and everyone's like no, oh, great job you're doing good did I like waste the last 10 years of my life like working this hard like was it like was it totally unnecessary and like I don't know like I think there was some benefit to me working so hard and I think similar to my start at Kirkland I got kind of a reputation for really good work and then you can sort of use that to kind of do it. I think if you start off and you're like, no, I'm not going to do this. It's so like your second day, it's, you're probably in trouble. But I think I I think I learned that balance a little bit better. And I think I, it wouldn't have happened without a family. I think my family kind of, just by me wanting to spend time with them, kind of gave me that confidence to do it. And I think, honestly, financial as i got more financially independent i was also more willing to speak up like i was just like what are you okay fire me i'm gonna go to a t-ball game if you want to fire me because i'm missing this negotiation to go to a t-ball game do it i can i'll be fine even before i was totally like felt comfortable retiring like i i could have survived for decades you know without jobs so i felt confident i could find something and you know they never did nor did like it even get particularly close it was never like i was like threatened with firing it was as I got more confident in that and sort of the ability to say, no, my job got better.
0: I'm now thinking about how AI can like predict people retiring. Oh, it's yeah. just like how, who, how many, this guy's saying no now. Like every time I ask him something, he's probably on his way out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, and we could, uh, speaking of AI, we could probably have a very long conversation about the thoughts around how AI will change the lawyer scene. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can save that for episode 80. Yeah. when we talk so about it's, your...
1: it's funny you mention that though on some of the why going forward is one of the things that actually might draw me back to working is there are a lot of like AI applications for the law, for legal. And I think that would be really cool to work in where I could work in less of like a legal role and more of like a AI role where I'm like, you know, whatever it is, training AI to do legal tasks or whatever it is. And I feel like something like that could be really cool. And that might actually draw me back into...
0: What purchase of $100 or less has most positively impacted your life?
1: Oh, d- this is so embarrassing as a story, but it I I think it just shows where you can spend a little bit of money and get a much better life. So our bathroom, we have this really nice master bathroom, but it's not very well designed for towel racks. The towel racks are super far from the shower. It doesn't make sense. And... I, when, when we moved in, we've lived here like eight years, I put like a hook behind our door, which is like the far corner away from the shower. And it was, it was like dripping everywhere. Dripping and it was a, and like, I'd bring it over every time and like hang it over the shower wall. And sometimes it'd get a little wet or I'd put it on like my sink and it, and we bought these $5 hangers over the end. Cause it's like a, it's like a glass, like open shower. And so we put these like $5, like little metal, they look nice, like little hangers on the outside of the glass wall and the towel is now right there game changer just my bathroom like the shower experience is so much better now and it's so embarrassing it took eight years to find these little like they're like a little s hook and they just there's not even an installation you literally just like hang them over the thing it takes seven dollars and this like totally changed my shower experience it was like always a pain it actually like because i put them on the back of the door and like the back of our bathroom door it kind of like mildewed a little bit because, like, and so then I was, like, cleaning the bathroom door, like, and it was just, like, all this, and it turned out there's, there was just like, super easy hook, and it is just, I, we got it, like, six months ago, and I still, like, every time I do it, I'm like, oh, look at this hook, and I'm so proud of myself, and it's, like, such a, the, the other thing, we actually bought it in the same Amazon order, is our sink is in the middle of, uh, of the island, and there's no backsplash or anything, and it... Every day we would like do dishes and use the sink, and there'd be a little like river that forms and goes back towards like where the the stools are, and we bought this like little ten dollar rubber thing. You can actually see it because we're right by my we're in our dining room right by our kitchen. This little rubber thing, and it catches all the water, and the river's gone. And again, this is just like these are the stupidest little things. These cost a combined seventeen dollars, I think, on one Amazon order, and. Made my quality
0: of life so much better. Hey, that's the intent of this question is yeah. to is to figure that out. And both of your answers are very applicable to me. Yeah, so I wouldn't be surprised if we have that same you seventeen dollars order. Those two
1: things because it it was crazy how much better my life was with it. And like you know, we've bought other things, and like we're pretty intentional with our purchases. Like we have like a Robovac now, like a Roomba, and it's great because that was sort of a stressor in our lives It's over a hundred dollars, but it was you know, but those two were just like little purchases that just game changer.
0: What advice would you give to a smart driven college student about to enter the real world?
1: I think I've never been very good at finding like my purpose or anything at work. And so I, you know, my advice is almost take it, like, don't worry too much about that. Like, I think find a good job that you can good people and you'll you'll figure something else out i I think going back i think one of the themes at my jobs is working hard early and establishing that reputation like when you first start a job uh i sort of joked about it at at both my place of work i was sort of and you don't have to be as crazy as i was like you can have a life outside of work but like i think kind of going above and beyond when you first start and kind of creating that reputation sets your entire time up for success I know there's a big push right now for for much better balance, and I think that's great. I, I, you know, I'm I just quit my job, so like clearly I'm I'm on the team. I'm I'm, I'm a supporter. But I think like when you're first starting a job, if you can go above and beyond, and kind of like it doesn't have to be like crazy hours, it doesn't have to be weekends or whatever, but like just do more than it's, it's expecting you, kind of get that reputation, you will be fine. Like it will it will make the rest of your time so much better. It will be it gives you that ammunition that later when you're like, no, I'm too busy. No, I'm doing this. Then they're like, Oh, it's because he's, he's, he can do things. He's just actually got a reason. It's as opposed to like, no, he's lazy, which is sort of the, the fear when you do that at the very beginning of a job. And so that's, that's always my, that's my advice when sort of starting a new, starting a new job and getting out there in the workforce.
0: Yeah. Cause it is tough when you're young because you're looked at in a certain way. And so if you, the, the thing that you can control is your work ethic. And, and you talked about saying no, earlier and I, I love that advice. It has changed my life as well in being able to say no effectively in work and in personal life. But I heard someone say, and I, 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 think I agree with this is like at the beginning of your career, say yes to everything, like learn, say yes, take on projects, work hard because, because then you're figuring out what you like, what you don't like. You're, you're maybe hopefully building a reputation of someone that like is a go getter and can, and can figure stuff out, but you're figuring stuff out for yourself. But then as you enter probably your thirties, you gotta start saying no. Exactly.
1: Yeah, no, I think I think that's I think that's right. It's funny that my advice was work hard and then my my most helpful thing for myself was say no. So clearly I agree with you though that like it depends on where you're at in life. But like I've started every job I've started at, I was sort of useless at the beginning. Like even like, you know, I started at CrowdStrike six years ago, I was seven years into being a lawyer. It was all new to me. You know, it's a new company, new type of technology, new everything. I couldn't come and be like, look, I'm the best lawyer. The thing I could bring, the thing I could control was work ethic. And I did. And so like, I brought it because that's what I could offer. I think that's, that's good. I think that's, if you don't have anything else, if you're not like a super expert, if you're not, you know, don't have a ton of relationships, bring your work ethic. It's what you can control and you can do it and, you know go from there
0: yeah what have we missed
1: you know what's funny is you have this whole thing and I prepared for it and you never asked me which is define growth mindset I thought that was like your thing I thought that was I thought that was a, I thought that was a kickoff question so I like I've read it now I've been talking for so long I like forgot my answer but uh, I that was the question that Well, fully
0: how would you define a growth mindset
1: I actually had never heard the term up until a couple of years ago. I think it became sort of, sort of became in the business mindset and your podcast and everything like that. But I hadn't really. It heard. was really
0: my podcast it really that really brought it out. Clay
1: kind of created the term and the rest of the. Carol work,
0: Dweck really didn't do anything. Yeah.
1: But like I, you know, it's not. You know, I don't. I don't spend a lot of time on like business books or anything like that, where I think they, they they're a little more popular. And so like I've sort of seen it on LinkedIn and and with you and things like that. But it kind of resonated with me in the sense of. My approach in life has always been you can improve almost anything. And I don't even mean like I think growth mindset is often told in the context of like skills like hey I can get better at writing, I can get better at reading, I can get better at mountain climbing or whatever it is. I think it's everything. I think you can I think you can improve almost anything and it can be a relationship, it can be your job, and I'm not even saying like quit and get another job. That's obviously an option to improve your job, but even as simple as thinking about it a different way can improve it or you can get better at it you can hey maybe my job's terrible because i'm not that good at it and i just i need to learn how to do be better at it or maybe i'm saying yes to too many things and i need to learn how to say no and you can improve everything and I, i've always approached life kind of like that and i think going back to the inertia thing i think a lot of people don't i think a lot of people just kind of it's you're you're kind of in the inertia you have the job you have you hate it, whatever. And it just keeps going like that. And I, I think I've, I've never really approached life like that. And I think it's why I'm a little bit more kind of all over the place than some people. Although, again, looking back, my life looks fairly linear, but it didn't feel like that. Um, and what's cool about it, what I like about it, as sort of that being the my mindset, and whether you call it growth mindset or whatever else, Or wildly self-centered, I don't know, but um, is that it? Kind of opens up like the world of possibilities to me. Like I, you know, for me, I I think about things and I'm like, I could accomplish most things I want to if I wanted to. If I could make a plan, if I want to make a plan and put in the time and do it, I just I don't for most things. Like I'm, you know, a subpar basketball player. I could become a much better basketball player, but I've just never really spent the time. Maybe now that I'm retired, I will, and it kind of opens up this world of like it's not that I'm not good at something; it's just I haven't tried, you know, I haven't gone and given the time yet, and I I think that gives you the opportunity to kind of make the world your oyster, kind of thing. Like you can do whatever you want, you know, it, and you can you can improve every situation if you want to put in the work and do it. And right. so you just have to be intentional about it. Right. I talk to my kids about it all the time. Yeah. Like
0: we'll play like horse right yeah. with basketball. And I will beat them because I'm, yeah, not merciful. You're amazing but, at basketball, right? Well, and that. <laughs> but they're like, Daddy, you're so good at basketball. I'm like, well, thank you, no big deal. <laughs> but, that, I, but but that, the,
1: by the way, there's no conclusion to the story. That was it, just to tell them that you're great at basketball.
0: But I, but I, but the way I frame it in my mind, I'm like, yeah, I'm so good. I'm so good. But it, outwardly, the way I frame it to them is like, yeah, it's because I've been practicing for 30 years. Right you look at any of the golfers out there or any of the athletes or whoever, it's like, sure, they're extremely good at what they do, but that means they have practiced a lot and they've been very intentional about it. That's why they're good. It's not that you just like rolled out of bed and just got good at something or improved right. that at it. It just, it came with intentional work. So I think your thought around a growth mindset is, is awesome. And it, and it is absolutely applicable to broader than skills. No yeah. doubt.
1: Yeah. And I think like, you know, I, I think going back to like my New Zealand story and that like I was never someone who like made friends easily. Like I was not someone who like went up to a group and like could talk and like I was backpacking around New Zealand and staying in hostels and like, you know, you're eight people to a room and like everyone's, you know, young, you know, everyone's under like 25 and it was just, I learned how to do it. I just did it. Like my approach was just like, like, I just like walked up to someone. I was like, hi, like, I'm sure it was awkward, like super awkward. Everyone's nice. And like, people are okay with that. And it's never, it still makes me nervous sometimes. Like I'm okay. One-on-one, but in group settings, I get, I, I can get a little like nervous and, but like, I just go for it. Just kind of throw yourself in. And it was something where it's like, I never felt like I was good at it, but you do it and you can get better at it and it's just something that's not a natural thing for me but it's something I can get better at and so you know I yeah it's something we talk to our kids about too is just like trying things like hey you know it's it isn't it is hard to go up to a kid but you know try it see what they say you know like they probably want to play with you too they're just too nervous to do it and like no one's naturally most people aren't naturally super charismatic and stuff it, it feels like it because you see very polished people but a lot of it is just a learned thing and so you know I, I think that's that's how I approach it and it I think it makes life more fun for me, like where it's like, hey, I can I'm retired now and I can do literally anything I want. And I'm like, I'm so egotistical, I'm like, I could be president if I wanted. And like honestly, like I'm like, hey, I I have I have a I'm a lawyer. I can talk to people. Sure, let's do it. I'm like, I don't want to, but like that's how that's how But if I wanted to That's how egotistical my growth mindset is. (laughs) It's only recent that I was like, you know what? The NBA dream has probably died (laughs) but
0: But just like a year ago, like, I, like, yeah. you're like just over right. the cusp yeah. right
1: there. I mean, I'm not that much older, or I'm, I'm about the same age as LeBron, so like he's still doing it. So, like, clearly, <laughs> if
0: I dedicated like three months of my life, basically the same person.
1: But yeah, no, and I mean, like, you know, it, I, I think you do have to be somewhat realistic. Like, if the dream is NBA, you know, that's probably not great for me. But you know, I think I could certainly get a lot better at basketball if I wanted to spend my time doing it. And so. You know, I think there's there's a lot there, and I think I think that's just a cool way to kind of approach things and think about it so that you can kind of live the life, the intentional life is, I think, sort of the, the theme of my
0: stuff. What I don't think you realize is the pressure you have now put on me by you retiring.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, and, it, yeah.
0: And, it, and it doesn't have to do with me potentially retiring at some point. It has to do with the fact that from basically the moment I met you, I have told you and I've told others that if I start a company... That Foley is going to be one of my first calls. There we go. And so now you've put this pressure on me. It's like, dude, he's a free agent now. Free agent. So before he, you know, as he's going through his next couple months, I've got to like, I've got to create something. I've got to do something because you're going to get snatched up. Your time is going to get snatched up in some form or fashion. Right. And so now is the time. So d- just know the pressure you've now put on I, me.
1: I'm glad. I'm glad because yeah, I mean, this is that's the, that's the long term plan. So uh, yeah, whenever you, whenever you start that company, if we get, that can be my impact thing.
0: Perfect. I would love to make an impact with you. Anything else that comes to mind?
1: No, I think we got it. I have no idea how long we've been talking, by the way.
0: I want you to guess. Like an hour and a half. Two hours and 20 minutes. Look at that. Easily the longest that I've ever done.
1: Oh, wow. Good luck editing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully AI can help me with that. Well, Fully an absolute pleasure. I appreciate you inviting. Well, actually, I was going to say appreciate you inviting me into your home. I actually invited myself to your home.
1: I appreciate your invitation into my home and your invitation to do this. This was fun.
0: Yeah, man. This was great. So today we built with Foley. Foley, thanks for being on. Thank you. Hey, listener, it's Clay. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Build with Clay podcast. I encourage you to subscribe wherever you listen so you can discover all the episodes and hear from others about their growth journey. If you know me at all, you know that I love feedback. So please rate the episode and provide your comments so I can grow and be better for you and our guests. For more content, you can find Build With Clay on Instagram at Build With Clay and head to claydavis.substack.com where you can sign up for a bi weekly newsletter sent directly to your inbox. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're inspired to grow.